Bem-vindos ao Type Theory for All Podcast. This is your host, Pedro Abreu, but you can call me PA for short. In today's episode, I had the pleasure to have an in-depth conversation with Connell Elliott. In this episode, we talked about his life, his work, his philosophy, and his many opinions about research and the current state of PL. How it led him to come with the concept of denotational design. Connell got his PhD at Carnegie Mellon University in the 90s under Frank Fanning working on higher order unification. After that, he has devoted his life on thinking and refining graphic computation and tools behind it. Some of his most influential papers are The Simple Essence of Automatic Differentiation, Compiling Two Categories, Generic Parallel Functional Programming, Denotational Design with Type Class Morphisms, Functional Images, Functional Reactive Animation, and many others. I know that this episode breaks our usual length. It's a much longer episode than usual, but I swear to you that it's worth every single second. Without further ado, let's get into it. All right, welcome everyone to one more episode of the Type Theory for All podcast. Before we start today, I would like to take a little bit of time to thank our listeners to still be here with us, to be sending their comments and their questions in our website. And also, don't forget that everything that we're going to be talking about here is all going to be in the show notes somewhere in the description. All right. So before we start our show today, I'd like to introduce my co-host today. Things will be a little different. Angelo Jabrai is here with me. Thanks for taking this invitation, Angelo. Welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Pedro, for calling me for, to co-host this episode. Um, I am a second-year PhD student at Purdue University, and I work with Professor Kier Kramp. Uh, my interests are the intersection of programming languages and compilers and also uh, type systems in general. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, talk with our guest today. Yeah, we have a very distinguished guest today, Connell Elliott. Thank you so much for accepting this invitation, Connell. Thanks for oh, being here. It was a pleasure. I, yeah, I'm really glad to be here. Thanks, thanks for the invitation. I uh, enjoyed meeting you and uh, enjoyed talking to people about what we all care about. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I, I really love how we are, just to set the, our audience right now, we're all in Connell's farm here, vir virtually with him. Um, it wouldn't, do, you, do you call this a farm? Is it uh, more of a... Oh, I just call it living in the woods. I, I, I live call on a 20, woods. yeah, I live in a, in a, in a forest setting with no other houses in sight on 20 acres next to uh, my family's uh, 60 acres. And I've lived wow. here on and off since I was 13. And it just really touches me deeply. My parents lived here for the last, uh, oh, 45 or so years of their life. And, uh, their, their spirits are present and, uh, yeah, it's just a happy place for me. Wow. That's beautiful. Thanks for sharing. But it's, it's quite of a, how can I say, different decision for someone so deeply involved in tech. So how yeah. is it for you, right? Because clearly for me, you have this um, deep connection to nature somehow, but yet you're, you're so deep in the computers in tech. Um, how did that play in your life? Oh, yeah. <sighs> wow. Wow. That, 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 that's a lovely deep question. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, there's all kinds of directions we could go. I mean, you know, computers are made of nature, at, right? 
and, and we are made of nature, right? We're, we're, we're just different manifestations. Uh, uh, and, 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 and also the, um, uh, we, we, we have, we have minds, we have like conscious minds, right? Cognitive sort of thing going on. Right. And, and, and computation, particularly, uh, a traditional, uh, a, a sequential computation, you know, ha has this sort of linearity like the conscious human mind. And, and yet both are made out of, out, out of much finer grain uh, constituents that are not at all like themselves. You know, cognition is this kind of a sequential thing. But what's made out of is very non-sequential. Neurology is very non-sequential, right? And, and computation is the same way. Uh, even when people are doing sequential computation, what it's really built out of is very non-sequential. And, and then in the large, when you put a bunch of minds together and a bunch of computers together, the sequentiality becomes lost again. So it's this very uh, uh, localized, uh, it's a very localized phenomenon, right? And, and, and nature, of course, is, is all like that. It's, it, it's, you know, emergent phenomenon at all levels. Uh, and, and so the, as far as the like going back and forth between the two, I find that this environment just deeply inspiring, deeply touching to me. Uh, and, and the fact that it is um, so different from the tech culture, I think is a really, really important antidote to the tech culture because the tech culture is quite skewed. Uh, and we are in a period of time right now when uh, I, 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 we, we can talk more about this. I, I think computer science has fundamentally lost its way um, right now. And, and, and you guys are in the generation uh, of, of a kind of a deeply lost time and, and you're being trained from that perspective. Um, and, and so to have, to be like immersed in nature as a reminder that this thing that we are doing right now in computer science and in culture, uh, is aberrant and, uh, and not deeply connected uh, to, uh, the, the kind of powerful truth of what's going on. Uh, I find really helpful and I'm grateful to have it. And so I hope that by, you know, visiting you and talking with other people from here that I can, you know, sh share some of that, like uh, remembering and connection to uh, the, you know, the interconnectedness and the simultaneity of, of all that's going on with computation being in harmony rather than being uh, uh, out of harmony with, with that uh, perspective. Wow. Wow. But you said something very shocking right now, which was this idea that we are in a lost generation. What, what do you mean by that? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, we're, we're, we're in a strange time. We're in a very, uh, I think, a very um, deceptive uh, time in history uh, at, at different scales. And computer science is one of those, which is we are after the invention of, of, of mechanized computation, automated computation, right? So, so computation has been going on as long as there's been physics, because physics just computes all the time, right? At all scales, that's what physics is doing. <clears throat> and then, and then, you know, manifest in mineralogy and then botany and then biology, right? And, and then, then that become, it became us and, and we compute, right? That's it. So we, we're computational organisms as well, right? But then very, very recently, you know, just like a nanosecond ago, uh, uh, in, in the big picture of things, we, we have th these like thinking organisms have created other organisms that, that think in a systematic way and that's computation, right? So we're, we're slightly after that shift, very slightly. We're about 70 years or so after that, after that shift, right? Um, but we are before, I, I think we, we are in a pre-scientific age of thinking about, uh, about computation. 
So, so computation is like before computation was invented, right? We weren't confused about it because we didn't think about it. In, in the future, I think if we survive, we'll, we'll have a very deep and powerful and mathematically grounded and beautiful, elegant uh, perspective on computation. And right now, I think we're at this very awkward phase where we, we've kind of been introduced to it, but we're thinking about it in entirely uh, ugly and clumsy uh, sort of uh, adolescent or pre-adolescent and particularly pre-scientific ways. So that, that, that's, that's kind of what I'm saying. Now, what do I, what do I mean about being in the lost uh, generation uh, or, or, or successive generations um, is, is that um, I've noticed in talking to, to like programmer folks um, and, and just within myself, I think there are two, at least two quite different impulses that we have. And we'll see if you can relate to what I'm saying here. One impulse is it's fun to get machines to do our bidding. Yes. Okay. So, so we, we've got this machines and we have some sort of power over them, right? We or we're puppet masters and we can pull the strings. We can make them do things, right? So that, that, that's one kind of activity and it's fun. Um, it's fun isn't maybe in a way like, if you could get your younger siblings to do what you wanted, right? Or your animals to do what you want. <laughs> you, you know, I mean, it, it's that kind of a fun thing, but it's ultimately not very revealing. It's kind of a big ego trip, hmm. right? It, it, it's not a very deep experience. It's not an interconnected it's a, experience. And it's addictive too. The more you do yes. it, the more you want, right? That's yeah, why we keep exactly. doing what we're doing. Uh -huh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And in part, in part, we keep doing it because it's not ultimately satisfying. Right. Mm. It, it, it's, it seems kind of pleasure, pleasant, but it's not ultimate. So, so that, that's, that's one activity, making these machines do our bidding and exercising our cleverness. So, but the, I, I think there's a very different kind of appeal um, in addition that we, that we uh, experience, which, which is we want to understand the universe. Right. So I want to understand the universe. I'm part of the universe. I have a very limited ability, right, that evolution has given me, how small I can see, how big I can see, how fast I can see, how slow I can see, right? There's the, the, these dimensions, large and small in time and space. And we are able to like relate to a tiny, tiny, the electromagnetic spectrum. We can see almost nothing of it, right? Uh, 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 audio frequencies, we can hear almost nothing. So we have this very, very small slice that we relate from, but we are in a huge universe, right? And we are curious creatures. So, uh, 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 so, um, uh, we have historically and particularly in the last few hundred years, since science has come into being, we have found ways to amplify our ability to relate to the universe in the small and the large and the fast and in the slow, right? So we have built telescopes in order to see much, much further and see things that are much larger and see things that are much longer ago. That's what telescopes are about. Microscopes allow us to see things that are quite close and that are very, very, very small, right? That we couldn't normally see. We have high speed cameras that let it, that, that, that take very, very fast phenomena and then bring them to our level, right? And then we have time-lapse the opposite, right? That brings things, right? So we, we have developed instruments that enhance our ability to perceive that, that you know, greatly stretch. And of course, radio telescopes, it shifts the part of the electromagnetic spectrum, right? That, that we're get we're get to um, perceive. Okay, so computation is is besides this thing I can deal with like a puppet master, I can boss around. It is a tool that amplifies my ability to relate to the universe, 
right? To, to be able to perceive things in, 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 the, in the physical universe and in the Platonic universe, like idea space. So, so, so for instance, right, you can write down the, the equation of a fractal in a few characters, right? But what do you really understand in doing so? You understand it at one level, but then with the computer, we can render fractals to high resolution and we can move through them in to the very small and to the very large, right? And we get a whole different relationship to them, right? So that, so this is this thing, if we want to understand self-similarity or something like that uh, with, with fractals, with, you know, other fractal phenomena like ferns and so on, uh, we, we, we can use this computational tool. And so that plays the same role as a telescope to outer space or a microscope to, mic to microscopic organisms, right? To that kind of inner space, right? And, and so there are other tools like that. That to me is a very different kind of um, motivation and inspiration for computation. Um, so like uh, you've probably heard this saying, it was from Dijkstra. Dijkstra said, uh, uh, computer scientists know more about computers than astronomy is about telescopes. Hmm. It's all about so, the two. So, yeah, exactly. So um, a telescope is something to look through in order to connect with truth that our senses have not been constructed, to, right, to, to be able to take in directly. So we extend our senses. And that's, that's what we're doing really well in this period of time since science, since the 1700s, since science has really taken off, 1600s, warming up, 1700s, really taking off, 1800s, you know, it's just exponentially, exponentially growing. Yeah. So to me, that's a very different sort of relationship to computers than bossing them around. It's, it's much more like a, a place of wonder and humility, right? Expansiveness, uh, 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 that kind of thing. It, it, it's not, it's not this, it's not like this ego thing that's in charge. It's more like almost worshipful or something like that. It's, 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 you know, it, it, a sense of like gratitude and wonder. And, and so, so, so I, I, I don't know if, if, if you if you relate to those two kinds of enjoyments of, of computation. I definitely do, because often enough, it feels like what we are doing is just, there's this expression in Portuguese that is basically brushing some bits, right? We take the bits and take them for a walk and to do interesting stuff for us or, you know, just serving this for what? Just give me some results, right? But um, in a way, what you're saying here now, I understand a little better another stuff that we, man we, we briefly mentioned before this episode in our private conversation, which a lot for you has to do with the elegance behind computer science. Yes. How does that tie together here? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Elegance, uh, um, I, I think it, it is my deepest value in computer science. Um, and... and and, uh, and so, so I think what I mean by when I say that the, 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 the computer science is, is lost, it, it, basically we're in the dark ages of computer science, slightly after its beginnings and before its enlightenment, right? So we're in the pre-enlightenment phase of computer science and, and, and the pre-science phase of computer tinkering. So um, we're, we're in a deeply inelegant, most people I think who, who deal with computers, who think about programming, including programming language researchers, I think are, are, are deeply mired in, in an inelegant way to think about computation. And, and, uh, 
and and what inspires me and what I love to share with people and what I and what I'm always exploring in my work what it always is 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 a kind of sense of play and wonder of, uh, about what elegance can can I get tuned into all right okay so so what elegance is um um so um, Murray Gell-Mann, you may have heard him. He, he's a, a theoretical a physicist. He, he was a um, he was a colleague of uh, Richard Feynman at uh, at, at Caltech, um, and he gave a talk fairly recently on on elegance and beauty in physics. And and there's a deep question in in theoretical physics, which which is can you trust beauty and what's the role of beauty in physics? Okay. <clears throat> And and something that we have that, that that was stunningly compellingly demonstrated in the 20th century, is 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 the value of elegance. So elegance as a personal value. That's what I mean. Elegance as a personal value, as, as a uh, uh, as a tool for guidance, as a compass, um, is highly effective in theoretical physics. So elegance guided Einstein uh, in in uh, coming up with uh, the special and then general theory of relativity. Right, so it's just like, like sometimes called the most beautiful theory that we have is, is the general theory of relativity, um, and then absolutely it was a huge played a huge factor in uh, quantum physics, uh, in, in the formation of quantum physics. Uh, uh, you know, Niels Bohr and uh, Heisenberg and Schrödinger, and then especially Paul Dirac. Paul Dirac, I think, was what was like really, really tuned in completely faithfully to this this thing of elegance and and so what is elegance well it's something that mathematicians use to guide them and and it, it, it's what it's what computer science is, is lo- has lost and and so I'm trying to come back around so Murray Gell-Mann uh, gave this talk addressing this question of is is this a useful and why on earth would it be a useful uh, uh, a guidance toward truth okay so i don't know if you know this but uh, but modern civilization really is built on general relativity and quantum physics, uh, and so so uh, without general relativity, uh, GPS would would give us uh, seriously bad information. Okay, GPS system corrects for relativity, so it's not very noticeable on the surface of the planet. But even you go slightly off the planet, it's it's noticeable. You get far off the planet, it's very noticeable. Um, you, you you go from slow speeds to high speeds, it's very very noticeable. Okay, so it's it's a very parochial phenomenon that you can ignore a general relativity and take a Newtonian perspective and and, and get decent answers. It's very local, um, and also microelectronics, which I think we all know and everybody who's listening knows, has made a profound impact on society. Is completely built on, on understanding quantum physics. Could not happen without it. Okay, and and these fields were shaped by this personal value of guidance of beauty and dedication to beauty. So, so what is beauty and what is elegance? <clears throat> this is what Murray Gell-Mann said. He said, we call a theory elegant or beautiful if it's simple, which means that it can be expressed very simply in terms of mathematics that we have already learned for some other reason. Okay. So this is Murray Gell-Mann's uh, definition. And it really resonates with me deeply. So a theory is beautiful or elegant if it can be uh, expressed very simply in terms of mathematics that we've already learned for some other reason. Okay. So it doesn't mean that you don't have to learn anything, but it does mean you don't have to make up a bunch of complicated stuff to explain this thing you're doing. Okay, So you can build on top of linear algebra, 
because linear algebra has proved its value over and over again. We've already learned it for some other reason, right? Differential calculus, we've already learned it for some other reason. By the way, differential calculus itself is built on top of linear algebra. It's basically just linear algebra at its essence, right? Uh, um, uh, it, it could be that that category theory might be useful in something you're doing. That's a scary thing to a lot of people, but it's category theory is just, it's just a generalized notion of functions has the same kind of properties as functions do, it's kind of laws, but it addresses a whole lot more. We have had plenty of reasons to already learn it for some other reason. Okay. So when I say already learned it, I don't necessarily mean a particular individual has already learned it. You might have discovered like, oh, this thing I was putting off learning that I've heard over and over, I should learn. Okay, now I'm finally motivated, okay? So we have already learned it, I mean we collectively have already learned it, all right? So when I, uh, when I approach a, a, a puzzle in computer science, like how do I think about something? How do I design a library to talk about this? Um, I am always thinking, what's the simplest possible way I can formalize it, okay? So it could be expressed precisely in terms of mathematics, okay? So, so, so elegance and simplicity are very related to each other, but often when people say simple, they really mean familiar, okay? All right, which is quite different. And they also mean, um, uh, uh, programmers especially, they mean it's familiar and I don't understand it, but in a way I'm familiar with not understanding anything, okay? So like a Python programmer, right, uh, um, may think Python programming is simple, but it's only because they have no idea what it really, what they're doing, okay? That, 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 that's a terribly harsh way to say it. Let me say that differently. <laughs> uh, it, it, because they only have a very informal, intuitive sense of what they're doing. And if they made what they're, if they made the world of Python programming precise, mathematically precise, they would have to see how complex it is. Yeah. Right, exactly. You know <clears throat> You know, a lot of what you're saying really resonates with some thoughts that I that constantly comes back to my mind in the sense of you came back came back historically very uh, a very long time ago. I'm not sure when we started pursuing PhDs and all that sort of stuff to actually build academia and all of that, but it definitely seems to me that it, the more you go back in time, say Newton, Leibniz, Rutherford, Bohr, all of that, they were yeah. so deeply connected with this idea of wonder of searching the truth and that's what science really is and and i agree with you so deeply that this wonder this sense of let's find the beauty right let's find simplicity and elegance that is yeah what what do we have in academia today is so far apart from that we just we are so yes. concerned about having a paper after the other after the other and having grants yes. and writing these things and writing that stuff I look at my professors and they barely have time to actually sit down and, and, and think, right? Exactly. I agree with you. So did, where, where, where did things start going wrong, right? And yeah, for yeah. me, I don't, know, I don't know how much you, you would agree with this and what are your thoughts, but part of the reason why this might be happening, um, that's, that's the best. One of the explanations that I can see is that education is so largely accessible nowadays, which is definitely not not back then right so in a way we are faced with this problem of trying to teach more and more people and try to welcome more and more and more people to this wonder of the universe how you say it right but 
we haven't thought it through. How should I probably do this, right? I should probably put all of these people in the same room and okay, how, how is going to be the publishing process right now? I am, I am seriously concerned of how we approach publishing, for example, right? Like it's not as, so it's, am I. it's not as so skating, I, right? Yeah. I, th I think it's deeply problematic. Yeah. The, the, the whole, the whole publishing process and the role of publishing in, in, in what one's personal progress through sort of, you know, academic, uh, mill. <clears throat> so get, you know, getting your degree, your graduate degree in particular, right. And, and, and getting a professorship, if that's what you want to do and then, and getting tenure, right. Or getting through your postdoc and getting a professorship and then getting tenure that, that, that kind of process is like, all you're, you're always under pressure and to, to produce and therefore you cannot do fun you cannot um what do fundamental explorations you cannot challenge the scientific status quo where it needs a challenging most deeply you you cannot ponder deeply you know really significant questions uh, because they're too high risk uh, because you 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 can't predict that you're going to be able to crank out some kind of result in time for a paper deadline in time to get your paper count up time to get your postdoc and professorship and tenure and that kind of thing yeah so and and i really suspect that 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 this um uh um that, that this kind of pressure is part of why we are in the dark ages right now um and that it's going to take something different to get out of it um because the kind of papers that i see being published right now in a programming language uh conferences um are not at all what i consider beautiful they are they're kind of very incremental and mechanistic okay and they and in particular they're built on a paradigm that is uh i think hospitable to that kind of work rather than deep insight and beauty and that is and that is operational semantics okay so so the um so that there are different so if you want to understand programming right programming is is, is a process of, of uh, manipulating language so, so there are programming languages, right? So we've got computation, and we and 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 then and then we want to be able to shape computation and direct computation. Uh, so that so we need so we use languages to do that. It's not the only way to do it, but it's what we're doing right, right now. We're we're doing languages to describe computations, and then those descriptions end up being translated into something that that makes the machine, you know, that does the puppet strings, makes the machine do something. Okay, so so if you want to understand what the relationship between language and anything that it's expressing, like computation, that you need to know understand semantics, right? That so that that's the semantics is the relationship between uh, is the connection between language and meanings. Okay, so so meanings are called semantics, but the semantics of a program is that relationship. It it, it tells you given a program, this is what it means, or, or, and 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 maybe more usefully, given intended meaning, I want to back up. Right, and discover a program whose meaning right it, that that maps uh, toward this one. Okay, so so there there are different paradigms for semantics. So semantics is extremely important. It shapes how we think about right. Language shapes how we think. Therefore, programming languages that shape how we think about programming. Okay, and then and then and then the the semantics, the 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 semantic paradigm shapes how we think about the possible spaces of meanings of languages that are used to control computers, used to, to write, to direct activities of computers. Okay. And there are multiple paradigms for thinking about semantics, which is like the, the crucial uh, thing in programming is semantics. Okay. Do you, sorry to interrupt. Do you have a Please. preference 
uh, on that. Like you said, uh, as you said, like there are many ways to describe meanings of uh, languages. Yeah, yeah so, absolutely do. Um, yeah, yeah, maybe you can expand on that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, so there, are, there are you know there are various paradigms. I think the three most well-known ones are are operational, axiomatic, and denotational. Okay. So, um, uh, um, uh, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'll talk mostly about operational and denotational semantics. Okay. Uh, because the because those are well, those are particularly germane to this conversation. Um, uh, so, uh, in the late '60s, early '70s. Uh, Christopher Strachey, and then he was joined by Dana Scott, came up with this method that is now known as denotational semantics. It was known as like the, a, a mathematical uh, semantics of programming languages, and then they gave it this name, denotational semantics, at some point. This happened around, Strachey was working on uh, around the end of the 60s, um, and then Dana Scott uh, came and visited him in, I think it was 1970, and, and uh, Dana um, uh, answered a very key question that, that, that kind of like, I think Strachey really had the whole kind of enterprise worked out, but there was a very, very important question, which was, does any of this mean anything at all? Okay. Uh, uh, and, and the key question there is, does the untyped lambda calculus have any meaning, any mathematical meaning, any meaning, it, does it have a model? Uh, and, and, and we did not know that. Lonja Church did not answer this question. Nobody knew the answer to this question until 1970 when Dana Scott answered it. So Dana Scott answered this question of what it, what is a semantics meaning, a, a mathematical meaning of the Lambda calculus. This was a crucially important question because what Strachey had figured out is how do you translate programming languages into the Lambda calculus? And, and by doing that, he reduced the question of what did languages mean to what does the Lambda calculus mean? Now, at the time, a programming language, like Lambda Calculus is definitely not a programming language. We didn't understand uh, until Peter Landon, essentially, that, that, that Lambda Calculus was a, a, was a tool you could use for programming. And that's not what Church invented it for. He invented it to encode higher-order logic, to encode, encode logics and higher-order logic in particular. Quantifiers, that's what Lambda was for. It was, it was, to, it was to represent quantifiers in logic. Okay? And, and the higher-orderness of Lambda Calculus allowed for, a, <laughs> for, for uh, allowed to, uh, us to encode higher order logic in a very natural way. It was a beautiful invention, nothing to do with programming. Okay. So, so it was really, it was really Peter Landon who realized, wait a minute, you know, and, and, and Peter Landon figured out that you could, you could think of Algol in terms of the Lambda calculus, very famous paper run on that. And then he, and then he figured out, Hey, you can make, you, you can actually execute Lambda calculus on a machine, All right? This is a revolutionary thing. We take this all for granted. Okay. So, but, but 1970, uh, uh, at Oxford, th there was this, uh, Strachey had done this work, but which is you can take any language, which really meant an algal-like language, okay, imperative, sequential language, and you could, you could translate it to the Lambda calculus. So if you knew what the Lambda calculus meant, you know what those languages mean. That, that, that's, that's just by, by reduction, okay? But nobody knew if the Lambda calculus meant anything. It was this mechanistic operational thing because, because church defined a set of reduction rules, that's mechanistic. That's not, that's not meaning as a mathematical value. That's mechanistic. That may sound like a meaning to you because you're in the dark ages and because that's what you're being taught right now <laughs> as, as a meaning is operational semantics. Okay. So then Dana Scott answered this question. The fundamental question in there is what is, is what does recursion mean, if anything? And, and it may be hard to appreciate what a, what a difficult, profound question that is from our vantage point now because we use recursion so casually. I think my main issue to understand what what all of this means, sorry for the 
<laughs> for using that that word so much but um what does yeah, meaning but... means here what yes. what is this translation actually doing like okay calculus yeah. lambda calculus means something math so yes. what is that yeah yeah great yeah yeah so what are meanings all right so you you have you have, you have language right and and the la- pur- purpose of language is to convey meaning that's what language is for language is a carrier of meaning right okay so it, it carries it through time it carries it across people right after the, after we after we invented written word it carried it by right, all of a sudden as neil degrasse tyson said death could no longer silence us this is a profound change right in the invention of writing uh, before that uh, language was was still quite useful after the invention of writing it was incredible it extended the longevity indefinitely essentially Right, which meant our collective wisdom now got gets to grow monotonically. So, um, so, so, so that's what language is. What are meanings? Okay, so we kind of have a sense of what languages are. And if you're a computer guy, you kind of know what it means to like make a machine do stuff. And then, so you might think languages, programming languages, are to make machines do stuff. Human languages are for something else. But what I'm saying is, no. There's really one notion. There's really one thing. Languages are for conveying meanings. Computation is incidental. Computation is a way to help us observe meanings. Telescopes let us observe stars and quasars and so on, right? Uh, 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 we can look almost all the way back to the Big Bang now, right? And then, especially with James Webb, right before that Hubble, all right. And microscopes allow us to look uh, microorganisms, elect- uh, um, you know, scanning electron tunneling microscopes. You know, let us look very, very, very small. Uh, X-ray diffraction, right? Let's just look inside a nucleus of an atom, you know, essentially. You throw some mathematics on top of it, you can, right? So so that, that's what these tools do. That's that's what I'm saying computation is for, is for looking at meanings. So, so language lets us convey meanings. Computation lets us look at those meanings once we have a good way to convey them, right? You know, a, way, a, a way to capture the meanings in a language, convey them, and, and adapt them to the physical characteristics of computation. And that, that, that's the clever thing that we have done with computers. Okay. But what are meanings? I'm <laughs> saying languages are for conveying meaning. Computers to look at meanings. What are meanings? Yeah. So I would say meanings are mathematical notions. Meanings are what mathematics is about. Okay. So, so, so Euclid... All right, Euclid, uh, a few hundred years BC, he he started systematizing some clear ways to think uh, about some interesting questions. So Euclid started talking about points and lines and planes and triangles and collinearity and parallelism, similarity of triangles, and so on. And so Euclid built up, and no, this this was revolutionary. What Euclid did. It, it was revolutionary. People had these kind of vague ideas, you know, uh, but Euclid came up with this beautiful story of this is geometry. It's still a beautiful story all this time later. And, 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 and he came up with, he came up with a whole paradigm in which to think about all kinds of things. It just in order to think about geometry, right? Which is like, actually, you know, a few things that are not defined, but postulated a few notions that are defined. Like he didn't define what a point is. He instead introduced the word point and then, and then gave some axioms, right? Points and lines. And then the axioms relate them to each other without really defining what they meant. So this is, this is, this is the revolution that Euclid started. Okay. And so what were, what are those things? And, and then, then, then there's Plato, of course. Right. So Plato talked about, right. There is this world of, I would call it meanings. You might call it ideals. 
Right? And then you have the world of form that we inhabit, this physical universe. And the world of form is like shadows, shadows on the wall in Plato's cave, right? Of, of, of the ideal, okay? So, so that's what I'm talking about, is, is this mathematical space where we have things like points and lines and triangles and parallelism and so on, right? We, okay, we have, we have some understanding of them. Much, much later than, than Euclid, we discover non-Euclidean geometry, like spherical geometry, right? So uh, Lobachevsky and Abolyai and uh, Riemann and Gauss, uh, uh, Minkowski, and then Einstein was completely essential to, to understanding general relativity with non-Euclidean geometry, right? So, so the, the, these are mathematical notions that they, they have like certain properties. You can define them very succinctly and they turn out to be astonishingly useful in understanding the universe. And I mean the physical universe, okay? And that is at least to some degree, no, I let me take that back. That is a profound mystery. Why is it that these mathematically well-defined things? And also why is it that we are able to be touched and inspired, right, emotionally? you know, by, by this level of beauty. And, and also it, it turns out to be a tremendously successful predictor of physical reality. So, so like, I don't know if you know this, but, um, uh, Paul Dirac, right. So, so, so there was, uh, Heisenberg and Schrodinger, right. Niels Bohr before that, uh, uh, and Jordan, these fo folks were like starting to put together the, the, the ideas, uh, of, of quantum mechanics. And, and it was, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, based on some some very puzzling uh, phenomena, where there seemed to be quanta in uh, in, in 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 spectra that we were able to pick up uh, in, in in glowing uh, substances. Okay, so we started lo looking into it very deeply, uh, and and there were very very surprising things that, that seem to be coming out that are completely inconsistent with our understanding of the way we relate to the universe, and they are they're completely inconsistent. Uh, um, so then Paul Dirac, he came in and Paul Dirac was like laser focused on this idea of, of, of beautiful mathematics. Okay. So Dirac came up with incredibly beautiful, uh, e uh equation. Okay. Uh, uh, describing quantum behavior and, and, and he, he solved this equation and there were twice as many solutions as there should have been. Okay. So there were like two instead of one or four instead of two or something like that. I forget the details. Okay. And, and, and so, so like we've looked at some things and, and, and the things that we've looked are indeed half of the solutions of Paul Dirac's equations. What about the other solutions? Okay. So one, one can say that's a failure of mathematics, right? It, you know, it, it is a, or what can say, huh, we have, there's something we haven't seen yet. And Paul Dirac is the first person to see it via his mathematics. That is, in fact, what it was. And what he was seeing was antimatter. Antimatter was discovered empirically a year or two later and is exactly the, 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 those uh, anomalous solutions to Dirac's equations. They are, in fact, reality. And I don't so know if you know this or not. Yeah, but go on. Do you, think, do you think it would be correct to say that, in a way, what we're doing in mathematics is trying to describe truth, real truth? Yes. Uh, things yes. that are that are doesn't um it's beyond you and me right i even matter yeah yeah i i personally am, am very sympathetic with that perspective i think that's a kind of a platonic perspective a platonist perspective um i think it's fairly unpopular these days i'm a little embarrassed to identify with it but the truth is yeah i'm a platonist 
Um, I, I'm not sure whether I like believe it as much as, um, I mean, it is a metaphysical perspective. I think I, I don't know whether I, I believe it so much as, as, as at least I'm in awe of, uh, of the success of that kind of, uh, uh, fantasy, if it's a fantasy a story, if it's a story or just mysterious truth. So, so whether or not there is this platonic truth and we are somehow tapping into it, I really don't know, but, but I, I'm personally inspired enough to act as if, and, and then maybe we will understand later, you know, why, why mathematics is, is so effective in understanding, you know, the, the universe and, and, and predicting. What do, you, what do you mean by, um, it's embarrassing nowadays. Like what is the other, what is the competing idea here? Um, okay. So, so Newton, right. In the early 1600s, uh, Newton came up with a set of equations for gravity. Okay. So, so, uh, uh um, not long before Newton, um, most of the literate world, m m almost everybody believed that the world, that our earth, our planet was, this, was, was fixed in the center of the universe. Right. And, and, and then there were the, the sun and the stars went around us. Okay. Some stars exhibited, you know, most stars just went around us in a fairly regular way. Uh, 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 they, they still believed at that time that what the Greeks believed, which, which is that everything moved in a circular way because that, because that's what perfection or God or whatever would of course do. So, so that, so that there were these spheres and, and things were attached to the spheres. Okay. Now, some of the stars behaved in a weird way. They didn't consistently go around. They wandered back and forth and they were called the wanderers and the word for wanderer is planet. That's our word planet. It means wanderer. It means, it means a star that wanders for some odd reason. Okay. Um, there, there, there was this, uh, th this idea of how the universe worked, right? That this was, uh, the Ptolemaic view of, of the universe, the, 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 the earth is the center, the sun and the moon and the other planets go around. Some have peculiar behavior, but we can explain that by this thing called epicycles and, and so on, which, which explains how these funny orbits around orbits sort of thing happen. Everything's going around the earth, but a few of them, the wanderers, the planets have this extra weird thing they're doing. And then there was yet another uh, adaptation that had to be made uh, 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 to explain the um, why they behaved like ellipses instead of circles. That's what we'd say now. Why why orbits? Why orbits? Which everybody, since the Greeks know, are perfect circles because that's how the gods intended it. Uh, why they instead act more like ellipses? People didn't say they acted like ellipses. They said they act a little weird, and we need to fudge. We need to extend the explanation, right? So Ptolemy had developed a quite sophisticated explanation. Of, of how things move in the universe. Okay. Copernicus came along much, much, much later and said, jeepers, guys, there's a much simpler explanation. <laughs> the earth is not the center of the universe. It's a much simpler. And, and, then, and then all this complicated machinery could go away. Okay. So that, that was revolutionary and heretical and, and punishable by death. And that's the trouble Galileo got into. All right. Galileo was the first person to look through a powerful micro uh, telescope in nature. He was the first person to see the uh, uh, moons of uh, Jupiter, I think it was. Um, and, and and once you once you see the moons of Jupiter going around Jupiter, it's like, wait a minute, I can tell from here they're not going around the Earth, right? I can they never leave my telescope, right? So there are things that don't go around the Earth, 
huh? So that was part of the unraveling. And it's because he had a telescope. Like we have computers. It's the same thing, right? Except right. he made good use of his and we are wasting ours. This is what I'm, I mean, we can come back to it. Okay. So I, I might've left, lost the thread of your question a little bit. So the, 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 the idea of the question is that I asked if we can look at mathematics as a, some sort of search ah. of truth and you were yeah 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 so oh oh right so anyway yes newton so so anyway so kepler came up with a very with with, with a beautiful system of uh a, 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 a better understanding of orbits which is they are ellipses not circles okay we didn't know that and and we didn't have to know it because we didn't have telescopes so we weren't able to see that we were wrong Okay. And we could explain away, you know, some certain things. Once you have a telescope, you could, you, you, you look, nothing's a circle. Some things are closer than others, but not, nothing goes around in a circle. And people started like, like Tycho Brahe, people started making very detailed measurements. Uh, there were a few people who devoted, you know, tremendous periods of their life to make very detailed mo of movements. Then we got much more precise data, much, much more precise data. Uh, Herschel, uh, father and son were part of that as well. So, so anyway, um, so Kepler, he, he discovered these like planetary laws and it's that planets move in an ellipse, not a circle. And moreover, they, they sweep a planet. Uh, uh, and I don't just mean a planet. The moon does this around the earth too. Uh, uh, sweeps out equal areas in equal times. Kepler figured this out. Okay. So Kepler came with, with a quite beautiful, uh, um, I was going to say explanation, but that's the wrong word, a quite beautiful picture about planetary motion but it wasn't an explanation because because he didn't say why okay so so now now newton comes along roughly contemporaries uh so now newton comes along and and newton explains why planets move in an ellipse okay and it's a completely different explanation it's an act, it's it's closer to an actual explanation and 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 it is with his formula of of gravitational attraction okay so it's very elegant very short formula uh involving uh two bodies their their masses and their distance from each other and a gravitational constant that had to be introduced uh, we call g these days right and it's got to do with uh, uh so it, it, was, it was a very simple formula and if you use that formula you can deduce new you can deduce what kepler said okay but it explains it it doesn't just observe it it doesn't just like say here's a beautiful succinct description it, it's more of an explanation Okay. And it explained other things, not just what, what Kepler could explain, it explained other things too. And Newton had the profound, uh, uh, transcendent insight to realize that it wasn't just about, uh, bodies in space orbiting each other. It applied at all scales, everything, everywhere at all scales, including how bodies fall to earth. Okay. So, so that, that, that was a tremendous advance and, um, uh, and it was very successful for a few hundred years. Okay. But just like, just like a Galileo's telescope, right. Allowed us to see that the Ptolemaic view of the universe was wrong. Very, very wrong. Right. And had to be transcended. Thank goodness. Right. In the time after Newton, we developed more and more sophisticated, more and more sensitive instruments. I think that's what we do as human beings. That's what we're good at. We get curious. We, in, we, we, uh, we reach the limits of our ability to observe. And then we, we use our cleverness 
to enhance those limits, to, to go beyond those limits and observe more finely. And, and so Newton's theory was quite successful from 1620-ish, I think it was, until the, until the beginning of the 20th century when we started observing uh, inconsistencies. Okay, But it was tremendously successful up until that point. Uh, uh, Neptune was discovered via Newton's formula because Uranus, the planet Uranus, exhibited some behavior that was inconsistent with Newton's theory. Was Newton's theory wrong? No, there was a planet we didn't know about called Neptune. We discovered that planet by using the difference between what we observed about Uranus and Newton's theory. It suggested there may be another planet. We figured out where that planet would be, got a telescope, looked at it, and there it was. This is this this is what a, sci a, a successful scientific theory looks like. But then the beginning of the, of the 20th century, there were other discrepancies that had to do with the planet Mercury. Um, that what what we were uh, what we were noticing, and and uh, and we were not going to resolve that dilemma, that anomaly within the Newtonian paradigm, and this is and, and Einstein's paradigm uh, uh, does explain it, and and um, and in fact it, that that is exactly what validated Einstein's uh, theory is it, it is being able to get a really good look at Mercury uh, during a solar eclipse. Okay, so so what happened is is, is we, we refined and refined and refined our ability to observe until what we observed was incompatible with with the theory. Okay, and that that led to a scientific crisis. This is what Thomas Kuhn talks about in the uh, wonderful seminal book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Right, we we have a theory. We band together as a community. We explore the theory. We really try to stick with it. Eventually, we reach a crisis where where the where we're, we are able to observe things that we cannot reconcile with this with this paradigm, and and then there's and then there's a crisis, and then and then yet still people are will are still unwilling, right, to abandon their paradigm almost always until they're offered, you know, some security blanket of another sort of paradigm. There are a few people who are willing to go into an unknown space and say, "I really I thought I knew, I was wrong. I don't know." Now I'm in a period of receptivity, kind of a a feminine receptive, right? A sort of a yin space rather than a yang space. I'm I'm now open in a way I didn't think I needed to be open, right? I'm, I'm taking in, you know, I'm, I'm contemplating possibilities. Maybe I meditate more than I used to. And then eventually another story emerges. And this is what Einstein is one of many, right? People to, to enter that space and find a radically different, radically different uh, picture. And what Einstein found is there is no such thing as the force of gravity. The thing that that Newton explained and 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 formulated and made precise, which is, which is uh, an exact formula for for what for what the force of gravity is at every point in space, Einstein realized it does not exist. It's always been a fantasy. There is no such thing as a force of gravity. There is the there is the curvature of space time. There is no force of gravity. There is instead a curvature of space time. It's a completely different paradigm, and he was right and Newton was wrong. And, and when I say that, what I mean is, what I mean is, is, is that Einstein's theory is able to explain much, much more than Newton's. Okay, that, 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 that as as we've refined our ability to observe, we have so far not, as to my knowledge, gone beyond what what Einstein's theory is able to explain. We've gone far beyond what Newton is able to explain. Someday, I believe we will go beyond what Einstein's theory is able to explain, and then that will be a crisis, and we will move forward. And the reason I bring up this story 
uh, is an answer to your question of, of, of uh, about Platonism and is there truth out there? And I do not know whether there's an ultimate truth and each of these steps brings us closer. There, this is this is an unending exploration. Does this have, is, is there a limit here? Uh, I really don't know. Um, yeah, I really don't know. So I just have to say that in, in humility. I, I, I think probably, what I'm dedicated. Yeah. That's probably why science is so beautiful is because we don't know. That's what we're doing, right? Yeah. We're trying to understand what we don't know. Yeah, what we don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then to get back to the earlier part in the conversation about academia and the paper mill, right? And, and publications and promotions yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah. We are not, that system does not reward people for for. Wondering. Publicly not knowing, exactly, for wondering exactly. and not knowing and staying. So Einstein, from the special theory of relativity to the general theory of relativity, 10 years. He thought about this problem for 10 years. <laughs> okay. What is it going to be as a 10-year as a track if you're lost, if, you, if you're not doing anything for 10 years nowadays? Exactly, yeah. And he is the one who did work of lasting value, not the people who got tenure. He did Right. So so this this worries me about the academic system. And when I look at what is being published and coming back to denotational and operational semantics, OK, <laughs> I'll be going back to this question. So denotational semantics, I relate to it and I appreciate it. This is a paradigm that allows us to see what is beautiful and what is not. And I mean, beautiful and like Murray Gellman talked about beauty or elegance. Uh, it, 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 uh, so a theory is beautiful, elegant if it give, if it can be described precisely in terms of math, uh, uh, very simply, and it has to be precisely, otherwise it's bullshit. So if it can be described simply in terms of mathematics, so we've already uh, learned for some other reason. Okay, so I I believe the denotational semantics is the best lens we have that we have uh, uh, to see the difference between beauty or elegance and and ugly. Okay, so between the simple and the complex. Okay, so um, the, in other words, if it, um, and John Beck has talked about exactly this 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 point and this value in his Turing Award lecture, the uh, seventy eight, I think. Uh, can programming be liberated from the von Neumann style? Okay? That's a that, beautiful lecture. It's a beautiful lecture, and part of what he says is is this that 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 the beautiful elegant tools that Strachey and Scott have given us, denotational semantics, they, if, if you use those tools and you point, now I got to remind you, John Backus led the development of Fortran. Okay. So Fortran is, is like the quintessential sequential programming language. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. In a way it isn't. The, uh, what it replaced was, which was assembly code, assembly language, right? Very sequential, right? Very sequential. Every step did just kind of a little tiny thing, a billion of these steps in a row. That is von Neumann computing. Okay. And, and, and we'll come back to why it's that way or not. Okay. So, so John Backus realized how, okay. So Fortran was a huge advancement of that because Fortran allowed, it introduced expressions. Okay. So, so before that programs had a compositional nature of a very strict and weak kind, which, which is you, you could string together statements. Every statement was a tiny thing. You could string them together. There was one, there was one um, combinator, which is sequential composition. That's it. 
So it, classically, you know, you have the, you have like the the program called Skip, which is the empty program. I used to call that Skip, and then and then you you have a few primitive, you know, things like input output. You know, in a semi language, it would be like uh, fetch these registers, do this op, put the result in that register, right? So it's, it's just these really tiny, short things, right? And then you and then you use sequential composition. That's all you use sequential composition. So that means your program is is a a sequence, a single linear sequence of of of, of state changes to a von Neumann machine. Okay. So what Fortran did that was revolutionary under John Backus's leadership was to introduce the idea of compositionality on expressions, okay, not on state. So this is a subnormal machine is all about state. And incidentally, there are these tiny little expressions, one operator, two arguments that come from registers or addresses. Okay. Those are all the expressions you had. The revolutionary aspect of Fortran is that is that you added compositionality to those expressions, the right-hand sides of those assignments. Right in assembly, every single operation is an assignment. Okay, and 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 the expression that you compute is this very simple atomic kind. Okay, so Fortran. Uh, you know, Al Gold did this and Lisp did this much better than any, you know, any of the contemporaries came close to, uh, it, 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 uh, the idea of composing right-hand sides. So that's expressions. So, the, so then, so John Backus talks about that. This is, this is where, he, you know, he comes in, in in his Turing Award lecture, which, which was honoring him for Fortran. But the lecture is really about Fortran is completely the wrong model because Fortran is still essentially the sequential imperative model. And we've just we've just made the right hand sides a little bigger, okay. the The heart of this paper, which is the heart of, of functional programming, is that you make the right hand sides so rich you don't need the left hand sides. In other words, you don't need assignment, so you you, you just completely walk away. So Fortran is the straddling. You have the world of statements and the world of expressions. In assembly, you basically just have statements. The expressions are completely trivial. And then you have, and then Fortran, you, you can have some composition on both sides, but it's still much, much more so statements than expressions. You know, maybe, maybe you get something of like as long as a line, you know, an 80 character column punch card, you know, something like that, much as that maybe. But still your program is going to be thousands of lines, right? So it's still mainly the sequential, yeah? And then functional programming, you make them more and more so. And then the idea of functional programming, and part of the idea is, is you get rid of everything else. You only have expressions, okay? And, and so what are expressions? What are the meaning? What's the difference between expressions and, and uh, statements? Well, syntactically, we say, well, expressions have these ways of building and statements have those, but that's not the point. Right? The point of language is to convey meanings. So what meanings are expressed by statements and what meanings are expressed by expressions? Right? The meanings expressed by statements are von Neumann kinds of meanings. Now, I don't, I, I, I got to stop. I respect the hell out of John von Neumann. I think he's brilliant. He had a tremendous taste for beauty. John von Neumann invented massively parallel programming. He invented cellular automata as well as the sequential model of computing. John von Neumann, I think, made a very pragmatic, very, I want to say short-term, uh, pragmatic choice, which is which should we prototype first? Look at the machinery of the day, the vacuum tubes, you know, the all this, you know, <laughs> machinery of the day and, and, and say, you know, I think given today's hardware limitations, it'd be easier to prototype this sequential model that, than that, that, that he and following, you know, Turing and so on invented. Uh, it'd be a little easier to, to try that out first than to try out this other one that's arguably more elegant, which is uh, cellular automata, massively parallel computing. So this is short term. All right, we're going to do this little experiment. It's 1947. Okay. 
what is it now? It's 2022. We are still doing John von Neumann's initial short-term experiment. Okay. All right. So, so anyway, backing up to, to uh, but, John. Yes, please. Exactly. This paper you're talking, when I was reading it for the first time, I was like, oh my God, we are still discussing exactly the same problems we have. Right. <laughs> how like, exactly this idea of, of composition, of how to get to the core and the essential way of expressing yeah. something. And John von Neumann, now Beckles yeah. Nauer was already talking yes. about all of this in his in his during the war there. So yeah, 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 yeah. John, that. yeah, John Backus, who yeah, who was who was the B and B and F. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So 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 Backus, John Backus really was tuned in. And I don't know whether he got enlightened, <laughs> dropped acid, whatever it took. I don't know what. I don't know what you know, like how his his enlightenment that he was clearly into in seventy eight, right, relates to. You know, working for IBM, I think it was, and and mm. leading Fortran. And I really don't know how those go together. That would be interesting to to find out. Um, I almost got to meet him, but I I didn't. I oh. Oh. So 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 in anyway. So um, uh, yeah. So he talks. One of the things he talks about in the papers. It's, it's got a lot of wonderful. A lot of it's like very dated and like a little painful to read. But but it's just brilliant. And he he's he's you know he said he jumps right in and say um, imperative programs, Fortran and its predecessors and successors, including today's dominant programming languages, have no nice mathematical properties. Okay. They're, 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 they're built out of these two worlds, uh, the uh, statements and expressions. In other words, von Neumann actions, meaning state changes, right? So the von Neumann model is you have this thing they call the store. That was a historical term. We may not call it memory or something like that, or state, you might call it if you're a little bit sophisticated. Um, if you're a PL person, you might call it state, but you know, they called it a store at the time. And it was this big bunch of stuff, big unstructured bunch of stuff. And, and, and then you have a, you have a zillion instructions that are zinging like ping, 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 making tiny little changes and computation somehow or problem solving emerges somehow out of this, right. Out of this bizarre, you know, kind of ping, 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 you know, you know, to, to, to state, right. What, what, uh, what the essence of what functional programming was trying to get at and what I believe the functional programming community has almost entirely forgotten and lost. Okay. It, it w was, it was a beautiful, very different vision. And this is what Bacchus was tuned into by the time he wrote this Turing Award lecture, uh, which is, is a very different way to think about it, which is that there are mathematical, there are mathematical things. He talked about like the, um, uh, what did he call that? Uh, word at a time programming. That's a phrase he used in his Turing Award lecture. So, so von Neumann programming is this like word at a time programming, you know, which, which you might even think it was bit at a time, but let's say word at a time, which is we're going to kind of grab one tiny little thing, do one operation and stick it back. Then we see go, uh, progress to the next instruction. The instruction pointer moves, ding. We get another instruction. We find one little, one little word. Ding, 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 make a little, you know, hit it with a hammer and you stick it back, right? And you do that over and over and over. Like what insight could you possibly gain about the universe by doing that? <laughs> that, 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 that is, that's the model of computation, right? That's word at a time programming. And he talked about the von Neumann bottleneck. There are two von Neumann bottlenecks. One is the physical one, which, which is still uh, one of the main reasons com computers are so slow and so inefficient and a danger to the planet. Um, they generate so much heat. Um, it, it, it is, it, it is this back and forth to physical memory. There's a tiny, tiny little tube, the von Neumann bottleneck between computation, the CPU and memory. 
and every instruction goes like maybe four times, right? I got to go yeah. and get the instruction, come back. I got to then decode the instruction. And then I got to go got two more pieces of information, maybe, right? Come back and forth, back and forth. And then I get an answer. I got to go back. How many times is that? I lost count five or six or something like that, right? Every team, <laughs> tiny little instruction. So that's, a, that's incredibly inefficient in terms of physics, okay? And it's incredibly inefficient mentally. And this is this is maybe more, you know, like, like we can afford the machinery, but, 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 you know, we have very small, limited brains that have to fit in skulls that have to pass through a woman's pelvis, right? Yeah. Without killing her and killing us, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? So this is a very severe constraint, right? So um, this, this is a picture I got from Leonard Schlein in a beautiful book called uh, Alphabet Versus the Goddess highly recommend this book alphabet versus god he talks about the crisis of the small pelvis and the crisis of, of, of mental development of, of, of human beings why we have long childhoods and so yeah. on mm -hmm. um so so in any way um so so there's a mental bottleneck which is the von neumann paradigm the von neumann style in the in the title of this turing ward lecture is exactly this and it forces us to think small we cannot think clearly and profoundly and deeply and gain insight within the von neumann model of programming the von Neumann pro model of programming is still the dominant model of programming. Okay, operational semantics, which which which, which is main which is mainly what PL people are taught, is Im essentially mirrors this weakness. It, it, it's an essentially sequential and mechanistic way of thinking, which is not rooted in in beauty. It is uh, it, it's sort of fundamentally sequential, whereas computation isn't. We, if, if you think it is, it's because you've been programmed, right, with this deep misunderstanding. Okay, computation is not no more sequential than the universe is. Some people think the universe is sequential. I think I, I can't imagine anybody but a programmer thinking that. Um, um, but but you know the universe isn't, and of course computation can't be because it's made out of the universe, right? Uh, and 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 in its role of solving problems, those problems are mathematical things, or they're not sequential either, right? So, so anyway, uh, um, this Turing Award lecture for me is really about breaking out of the von Neumann bottleneck, the spiritual, mental, cognitive, right, philosophical bottleneck, and 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 getting back into uh, this, uh, programming not a word at a time, but very large, powerful notions at a time. And his focus was functions. So, so, so what the work that he was describing, which was his work after Fortran, was a style of programming you might call functional, or he, he used the word applicative more than, than functional programming, <laughs> but it's roughly equivalent. Um, and and the, the, the things that are manipulated there are not words, they are functions. Okay. So, so what is our programming for? Or what are the mathematical things that we're going to denote? In other words, what are the meanings of them? Well, a lot of possibilities, but one and the one he focused on is functions. Okay. So what do you build functions out of? There's a lot of choices here. Okay. There's a lot of choices what you can build functions out of. And, and he made a particularly elegant choice, which is you build them out of functions. <laughs> that's, the, that's the most beautiful answer, right? Because, because then you have, because then, right? Because then you have, you have fewer things. And when you build functions out of functions, guess what you can do with those functions? You can build other functions out of them, right? So anybody who has a paradigm that says this, that says there's really two ways to look at things. This is what you do in the small and this is what you do in the big, right? If ever, ever you hear something like that, 
stop and don't believe it, right? That, that every, every kind of piece of advice that says you should do this in the small, this in the large, for instance, functional programming in the small, imperative or objects for the large. You, 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 you should make your little like, you should have a functional core and an imperative shell. Uh, you know, anything like that. Every explanation says you should do this and this at one scale and that one scale is has to be incredibly parochial because there is no small and large, right? If you go from a quark to the universe, right? There's a, there's a continuum between the, a quark and the universe. Um, you cannot draw the line, right? Where's the line between big and small? Hmm. Right? Every line you draw between big and small is incredibly parochial. And, and, and it's, it, it's like every King says the new unit of measurement is the distance from my shoulder to my <laughs> fingertip. Right. Yeah. Right. It's just like, it's like phenomenally narrow-minded egotistical way to do things. Right. Every creature, every emergent phenomenon of the universe, right. That possibly has enough going on to develop an ego is going to make the same mistake. And, right. So, so anyway, uh, Bacchus's answer is so incredibly beautiful, right? Yeah. What, what do you make functions out of other functions? It's the only answer that that's not parochial. It's the only one you can come up with, right? Because otherwise you have something for the small and then you make, and you put enough of them together, you get something, you get the bigger things, which are functions, right? And that's what the von Neumann model does is, is, is it tries to make interesting things of one kind out of very different things, you know, of, of a smaller kind. Um, and, and, and so if we want an integrated uh, way to build up so a, a, a paradigm for building up knowledge, and we want that to be able to use that paradigm without bound, in other words, uh, what, what David Deutsch calls, if we want that to be a, the beginning of infinity, words, that, that paradigm we can just take and, and go as far as we want uh, with it, then, then it needs to have this kind of internal consistency, this, this kind of... Uh, it, it needs to be a, a, a loop in a sense. Uh, so, 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 uh, oh, John Backus in his Turing Award paper. Yeah. So he, so he, he points out denotational semantics gives us a way to, uh, it gives us two things. We can use it to design languages. We can use it to explain languages. Okay. And he, he says, he says, it's kind of surprising. And I think he means disappointing. And it is to me personally. That 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 so many computer scientists are satisfied with using these beautiful tools from Chris Strachey and Dana Scott to merely explain existing languages, okay, rather than design new ones. Now, now, reason this this difference is so important, okay. Well, it's very first of all, first of all, it's very relevant. So, I think the period we're in today, and when I look at what people are doing in the programming language community, what's getting published. I think this is exactly what Bacchus was was decrying, um, which is to which is to explain existing things. And Bacchus says, if you use these tools of, of denotational semantics to explain existing languages, you will get a quite detailed uh, description of their defects, of their warts. He might have said, or maybe the word defects. So you, you get you get quite detailed description of their defects. Okay, now that's very helpful if you then want to go and fix those defects, okay? Or if you just want to learn and say, start over, this is kind of basically unfixable. Thank you very much for showing me so clearly the mistakes that were made in the past. I'm going to try to learn from them and, may, and not make those mistakes, okay? So that, that, that's a powerful use of, of denotational semantics, of, of these elegant tools of Scott and Strachey, okay? But what 
what's, what um, Bacchus was saying that, that more computer scientists were doing then in the 70s, and I'm saying are doing now, right, in the 2000s. 20s um it, it, it is is instead they're merely uh merely explaining existing things okay so at the time what was being explained is is things like jump and break out of loops right uh, you know go to's basically like that that so you can explain all those things but <laughs> but advancement is going to come from getting rid of them replacing them Right. So it, it, so like advancement a little bit, you got structured programming, Dijkstra preached structured programming, and then there was functional programming, which Dijkstra didn't have, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, stock in later in his life, uh, to his credit, he had more. Um, but but late, later, instead of structuring uh, our go-tos, we decided we were going to eliminate, that's the functional programming people. Okay. Um, so, 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 um, I believe that, that, that denotational semantics continued to play that role. Denotational semantics continued to point out, uh, in great detail, the ugliness of, uh, of certain programming ideas. And I believe that that is why it was, uh, mostly eliminated and replaced by operational semantics. That, that, that it's the nature of operational semantics to hide the ugliness of existing uh, uh, biases and ideas about programmings, about programming. So operational semantics compared to denotational semantics, operational semantics, like everything looked kind of meh. It's not great. It's not terrible. It's kind of okay. It's good enough to publish in a paper. It can reason uh, about our programs here. It explains things. It's yeah, kind of. Yeah, intuitive, you can... step by step. Yeah, yeah. So it's got this kind of, it's somewhat satisfying. And also it's it's something you can train a grad student uh, you can train a, uh, you, you can train an intelligent monkey yeah. to, to apply, right? Because it does not take deep insight. It does, it yeah. does not require elegance. Uh, it, it, it doesn't require the thing that's most difficult and most valuable in science, which is deep insights, powerful, elegant explanations, uh, that have great reach and are testable and are what David Deutsch calls hard to vary. Uh, this is what kind of good theories, uh, good explanations. That's the word he used, good explanations. Okay. So whereas, whereas uh, operational semantics, I think, is much more uh, supportive of what we were talking about before, uh, of getting your graduate degree, uh, getting a postdoc, getting through that, getting your, getting your professorship, uh, and working toward getting tenure. In other words, getting regular publications. Be because it's very adaptable. So, so you, you, like, you have this little idea. You say, I'm going to, here's a, here's a Lambda calculus. I'm going to add this weird thing to the Lambda calculus. Here's all my typing judgments. Here's all my small step operational rule, right? Most of that is just boilerplate stuff that everybody's seen over and over and their heads are still ringing from the last time they saw it. And then here's my one or two extra little things. And here's a bunch of verbiage about it. Any educated monkey can do that. And so, so that, so you, you can get your grad students graduated and they can move on and progress. Okay. But the, the cost is huge. The cost is that we no longer can see the difference between elegance and inelegance, between beautiful theories and, and, and complex ad hoc ones. And in that process, we lose the ability to make significant forward advances in science. Is this of your, I can see that you're very disappointed with how academia in a way is going. Is this why you decided to go to industry instead? No, it's certainly not. No, um, no, that was just because I, I was the, no. the original question would be if is yeah. that's why you decided to leave academia. But obviously, you didn't leave academia. You're still 
very active and contributing and coming up with these beautiful papers. Absolutely. But yeah, you're yeah. not inserted in the regular regular way that is being a professor because yeah it's very no, that's intriguing. a personal historical accident yeah. it's intriguing to me that someone in the industry is still publishing such insightful work mm. there's something there's something going on here that's what i was so okay. intrigued right ah thank you yeah yeah it's because I, I and yeah and i would say i have always been i've always been dedicated to beauty number one and, 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 well two things, <laughs> truth and beauty. That sounds so cliche, but, but, but I really mean it. I really mean it. I mean, these are my values, truth and beauty. So, so uh, honesty. And I, and so to me, denotational semantics is like, is the, it's it, it, what it's the most powerful tool I know to make the distinction. Okay. B between uh, beautiful and not beautiful. Okay. And it tells the truth about that difference. Okay. Operational semantics makes everything look kind of, yeah. Well, some are a little uglier than others, some are a little prettier than others, but it kind of evens out everything, right? So the beautiful stuff becomes uglier, the uglier stuff becomes less ugly, okay? But it's not the truth. The truth is the ideas are beautiful or they're ugly. In other words, like Gilman said, they are either they can either be dis, uh, expressed succinctly in terms of the mathematics we've already learned for some other reason, or they cannot, Okay. And, and and that we should right that, that give us deep insight across fields uh, uh, into the nature of the universe. So to me, this this is why denotational is so important because it is our reliable guide to what's what's beautiful and elegant. And beautiful beauty and elegance are, as the theoretical physicists you know have discovered, are tremendously valuable guides to what is uh, what is a powerful way uh, to. Uh, to understand the universe and, and, and for computation, that's not only the physical universe, but the uh, universe of ideas. Um, is this why you decided to not go into being a professor, tenure track and all of that? Is that... No, 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 not at all. No, I, I didn't really decide not to. No, it was, uh, it was a personal thing. By the time I, fin I finished my PhD, I had four children. Oh. I, wow. I have four kids. By the time I finished my PhD, I had four children. I went to Carnegie Mellon University. I'm from California. Uh, my wife and I were both from California, and uh, and we wanted to be near uh, their grandparents. I, ah. I felt bad about having my kids away from their grandparents you know, during the the, the the tiny, uh, young you know years, which are such a special time. Uh, That's person's beautiful. Life. Uh, and and I you know made a few few applications uh, and didn't didn't get accepted, and I went into industry. That, that's huh. a really kind of a historical accident. Yeah, very interesting. So um, hmm. because. As I, as I mentioned, it's very intriguing to me that someone in, in the industry is so actively being part of the academic community because it doesn't seem to me that in, in the industry you have the, what's the right word? Um, you're not rewarded for doing it in right. a way, are you? Yes. Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, um, occasionally, you know, in some context, I, and I, I was lucky enough to be at Microsoft Research when it was uh, in its heyday, I'd say it's, you know, it's kind of the best years. So that's just good luck. Um, and, and they, you know, really did value good uh, publications. On the other hand, I was, I was a real oddball there. I mean, there was nobody else who was interested in functional programming. This was well before Simon PJ, uh, Simon Peyton Jones uh, joined and a few other people. Um, and I was in Redmond, uh, and the, the 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 kind of programming language theory people, you know, they started mainly in Cambridge, and then and then later showed up. 
uh, in Redmond. And I was actually in the, in the computer graphics group. <laughs> um, and so that I was way out of touch. Computer graphics people have this bizarre, uh, they have this bizarre condition of writing papers that are full of beautiful math and then translating those math into terrible, ugly, ugly, imperative programs, essentially. Torture <laughs> and, uh, and not, and like, somehow it's not part of their development to realize that that math is programming programming is math programming is just is just a subset of math that is executable by physics um and, and so it never occurred to them that their beautiful equations could be their programs they were instead two entirely different sorts of things so i was very much an oddball uh doing my own thing and uh and i appreciate the support that i got while i was there but i i think you know it was never really while I was there, uh, value of the kinds of questions I was asking that, that didn't really wasn't in sync. I think with the value. So no way you you so, almost you almost ended up working with. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I I know this is not the truth, but it it sounds like you ended up doing graphics programming out of spite of the horrible programming they've been doing, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, not really, not really. But yeah, yeah. Um, so when I went to grad school. <laughs> so I, I, I was a math undergrad at, at the College of Creative Studies at UC Santa Barbara, which is a lovely, nurturing, inspiring, wonderful environment. I was, uh, there were like 10 math students out of a college of 100 students in a university of 14,000. It was, it was a perfect environment for me. Uh, so I'm, I'm very grateful uh, for that experience. And then I went to grad school at Carnegie Mellon in computer science. Um, and I liked computer graphics because I always liked geometry. I, I liked beautiful math. I always like math. I always like geometry. I used to uh, hand build uh, polyhedra. This is like gorgeous, uh, complex oh. polyhedra. Uh, I learned about from a, uh, uh, a, a priest. Uh, I think he was a uh, order of St. Benedict, uh, Father uh, Magnus Winninger, a wonderful human being who, who published these books on, on polyhedra. It uh, inspired me when I was in high school. Uh, and then I, I uh, some of my first programs were programs to on a, on a plotter, an XY plotter uh, that, you know, actually moved a physical pen around, uh, would, would, would draw outlines of, of polygons in meshes in what they call nets that then I could score with a straight edge and a, you know, a fine point, something or other pen or something, uh, and fold up into beautiful polyhedra. So that, that was just like something that inspired me. And then, you know, computer graphics was a way of visualizing it. Yeah. So ah, like, a, yeah. again, this theme, right? I use computers the way that Galilei used a telescope, right? The way yeah. that Crick and Watson use a microscope, you know, for instance, uh, to, to be able to see something I couldn't see, right? That I that I cared about that touched my sense of beauty. Yeah. yeah. So so that I, I was really interested in computer graphics. Um, and there was some there was some good work going on at, at Carnegie Mellon. You know, I, I like went to the library at UC Santa Barbara and found some papers, like, oh, there's some good work going on at Carnegie Mellon. So well, I'm sign me up. And that's I got not accepted. What your thesis is about, is it? No, not at all, not remotely. So I got when I got to Carnegie Mellon, I found out that the, that the computer graphics people I went to study with left at the same time I showed up. <laughs> oh my god, no. Yeah, I don't know if they went west or what. I was traveling east. I'm not sure what direction they were traveling, but <laughs> but uh, but I didn't even meet them. <laughs> we, we missed each other. That exchange happened over the summer. So I found myself at Carnegie Mellon, you know, like a couple thousand miles away or whatever it was from, you know, family and so on in a place where there was no computer graphics going on, which is what I want to do in grad school. So I had to oh, find no. like, Oh my God, what do I do now? You know, and I brought my <laughs> wife and I, and my, my very small child firstborn, And, uh, there we were. So anyway, I had to look around and eventually I, I, I just found there was a group in, uh, reasoning about programs. 
uh, program transformation, program derivation. Uh, you know how to think systematically about about moving step by step from uh, something you might call a specification, something you might call more of an implementation, in a, in a, a semantics preserving, some people call it correctness preserving, uh, a way. Um, and and I was really fortunate that was uh, that that perspective of uh, I got immersed in and and th and uh, and that was my and my PhD work came out of that. Uh, and, and that, that experience, that immersion sensitized me to the idea that programs don't come from nowhere. Okay. Programs, there is a path from beauty and clarity to programs. Okay. So if, so programs, we might, we might want them to be efficient. We certainly want them to be computable. And then within computability, we want them to be efficient in space or time or something. Nowadays, if you care about efficiency, you care about parallelism because no sequential computation can be fast for a variety of reasons uh, in the 21st century. Not everybody knows that, but, uh, but the speed of sequential computation is unimportant um, in, the in the 21st century. So, in, um, so, so anyway, I learned, I learned the, this kind of sensitivity to, to um, if I've got something, an idea about how I want to implement something, there, there is something more beautiful than that, more simple, more insightful than that. And I want to back up and find it. And that sensitivity has you know, lasted me throughout my career. And I'm deeply grateful for it. But after I finished grad school, I still wanted to go computer graphics. <laughs> okay. So I didn't move back into it. It seems to me that researchers in CMU somehow, by what I can see with Bob Harper, Benjamin Pierce, Frank Fanning, your mm -hmm. advisor, right? Yes, they're in some sort of still in, a, in, a, in some sort of touch with this beauty and with the philosophy behind what we're trying to accomplish. Do, would you agree with that assessment? That's what what gave you the sensibility in a way. Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that that that, that, uh, that you know, computation is tied to something that's way more profound than making a computer do stuff, and 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 that you know by really digging in, and 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 don't stop until you find the beauty, right? And then polish it, and polish it, and simplify it, and simplify it. And when we simplify, we generalize. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I was Frank's first PhD student. Oh, uh, you're he, wow! <laughs> yeah, so he 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 graduated in the math department while I was you know a student, and then he joined our group. Wow. Uh, Bob Harper, uh, I don't know if he was doing his PhD or a postdoc with Bob Constable. Yeah. Um, Were and, you a student uh, of yeah. Bob Constable? Did you take that class? On no. Ah, uh, no, no. But what I was going to say is that, is that Bob, when he finished, you know, work, doing New Pearl, working with, he, he, he joined our group at, at CMU. So that, that's how, that's how I met Bob was he joined, he joined our group. Yeah. Uh, uh, Dana Scott was, was my co-advisor for a while. Uh, John Reynolds was a tremendously wonderful, brilliant uh, man and a wonderful human being, uh, was a co-advisor. And Frank was a wonderful advisor to me. I, I, I'm deep, I've always been deeply grateful. Yeah, to Frank. Um, uh, so yeah, yeah, I, I think they, you know, they were really in touch with something uh, and and uh, rubbed off on me, and I'm, I'm deeply grateful. <laughs> and then and then I still wanted to be computer graphics for goodness yes, sakes, but by yeah. that but by that right. time I had been sensitized, right? Plus I had been a math undergrad, and math really is, you know, comes out of this aesthetic of beauty. Uh, pure pure math does, yeah. So so then I had an opportunity to do computer graphics at Sun Microsystems. And, uh, and our group was, was kind of chartered with, um, what's the next, what's the next thing, the next programming, uh, interface after some horrible thing called figs, P H I G S, which was some kind of hierarchical graphical something or other programming. 
Um, and it was this imperative thing that was about building this, this something called, what do they call it these days, scene graphs or display lists. Those are slightly different, but related notions. It's basically a data, a data structure that you kind of traverse and side effect and then gets rendered from. Uh, and uh, people, it's still it's a quite an active paradigm. Uh, and so it, we were sort of tasked of, you know, what comes next? But in a very open-ended way, we weren't told what the answer was, just the question. And so I got to think about, I got to do computer graphics that I wanted to, and, and I got had a fairly, you know, wide open uh, a field. And, uh, and when I started looking at it, I also had learned functional programming and by that time typed functional programming. So I got to play with Lisp as an undergrad, but then I got into ML, uh, uh, which is, you know, richly polymorphically typed as a grad student. And so I thought about graphics from a point of view of, of you know, a nice type system in mind. But even more importantly, uh, I had been exposed to denotational semantics. So I, I, I uh, took a, a, a class in denotational semantics from Stephen Brooks. And of course, Dana Scott was right there, um, co-inventor. Uh, and, and it was a revelation to me in grad school, denotational semantics, because it's so matched how I thought uh, that 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 uh, the, um, the meaning of a language should be independent of any particular machine, including programming language, but also independent of the idea of a machine. So not just a virtual machine, right? And 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 so so to really understand language or understand what we're trying to say with language, we have to think about these meanings. And then, you know, anything worth doing is worth doing compositionally. So we, so if we're going to think about meanings, we should think about them compositionally, and that's denotational semantics. So I had a few questions regarding your time at Sun Microsystems. So you, you said sure. you were, yeah, um, you were part of this group that uh, whose task was to invent like the next generation of programming languages or or something of that sort. Was this part of the Fortress programming language, or was this uh, another? Uh, another group or see on on my end your, your question broke up a little bit uh, uh, to, uh, to do what language they were crucial uh fortress programming language or was it uh, fortress oh no 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 i had nothing to do with fortress okay no, i i think i i think i had left sun hmm. uh, before guy Steele came and started uh fortress okay yeah. okay yeah, Fortress was a, was a weird sort of thing, and I think I still realized it was a mistake. Uh, <laughs> uh, let, me, let me be specific. What I mean, <laughs> and, 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 uh, and specifically, I think what what Guy Steele did say. Uh, I think what guys what I what I remember Guy Steele saying is 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 what we did with Fortress is to start with Fortran and make it more like Haskell. What we should have done is start with Haskell. Hmm. Yeah, I had just uh, this question because, like you said. Uh, yeah, your the task of the group you you were in was about creating the next paradigm or the next programming language in a sense, and I thought like there, it was. Uh, uh, yeah, no, it was specifically for graphics. It was specifically okay. for interactive three yeah, yeah. D graphics. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, and and so when I thought about it, I real I you know I thought about from a functional and typed perspective and a denotational perspective, hmm. uh, and and so that so that that shaped our project, uh, and it really took a while for my boss to be okay with it because <laughs> he he would keep saying and and you know when we talk about like the pressures of a job and how they don't really reward very creative thinking very original thinking so he, he every every performance review i would have 
uh, one of his remarks is what Connell needs to learn to compromise better. Oh, and, 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 and often feedback I got from him was, is like, try to, try, try to align your suggestions more with common practice. And so this is my boss. And eventually one day I just had this like epiphany, this moment of clarity when I realized there's no point in him saying these things to me because I'm never going to do them. And it's never been my intention. It never will be to, to compromise or, 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 or make small incremental changes on common practice. Um, and so I told him one day, don't, don't bother saying that to me anymore. You know, give me whatever reviews you want, but don't bother saying that because it's not going to do any good. Uh, yeah. So, so I thought I got to think about 3D graphics in a, a functional way, a compositional way, uh, a way of what it means, not how it, not what it does. Okay. And that, and that, that that's the difference that, that, that graphics systems are almost always implemented the way almost everything else is implemented, but especially graphics, it seems, is, is that they are, a graphics program is a sequence of commands, maybe structured, you know, sequence of commands. Uh, in other words, like you might have loops and subroutines, what they used to call them, right? So procedure definition, so on. But, but they're essentially just ways of, of organizing sequences of instructions that have side effects, right? But instead of like the system memory, they're gonna be the video memory. Right. And, 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 and the, and the pattern that we want in memory after we're done as an emergent effect is one that looks like something to you, like some geometry or something like that. Right. But, but that model is a terrible model if what you care about is clarity. Okay. Because it's extremely hard to reason about in exactly the way John Back has said that, that because imperative programs, that is programs that are about sequences of effects, have no nice mathematical properties. Therefore, they cannot give you any powerful insights. So what I did instead is, is I said, okay, what are graphics programs for? Okay. In other words, what are the meanings they are trying to convey? Okay. I wanted, so I want to make a graphics program. It's because I want to help somebody look through a tool at something they are interested in. Okay. So I'm trying to invent a telescope for something. What is that something? And I, and that's the important thing. And the secondary thing is how can I make a device that helps you look through it? How can I use a computer? That, 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 how can I make a device you can look through to see what you want to see? And then how can I make a language describe what you want to see? Okay, That's very different from the dominant uh, design paradigm, which is how can I make a language or a library so that you can describe a sequence of effects who's, right, that emerge, that have this, you know, eventually, you know, cause a billion effects whose, whose overall aggregate result is to draw a picture, right? Because it, because it, it, it messes up these two things. The essence of what it is, that the, the idea you're trying to describe and give somebody a opportunity to look at, and then how the machine works, and what are the kind of physics in a way, what are the effects? So I divided those two things, and instead of a language of rendering, or even of affecting a data structure that would get rendered, okay, I designed a language, really a library, a vocabulary typed composable vocabulary of geometry and colors. I mean, it's like essentially what what Euclid did with a modern, a more modern vocabulary, a more modern linguistic framework, right? So a collection of types and typed uh, operations uh, on, on three-dimensional things, 
Uh, and the type system was very important because I knew, like, even if all I wanted was three geometry, three geometry is made out of other things besides three geometry. It's meant, right? It's got these colors and points and planes and all these kind of things, right? So there's going to be a rich system of types. And then there was another question, essentially orthogonal, which which is, but I want something that also lives in time, not just space, right? So how do I think about things that live in time? Okay, and again. The dominant paradigm then is the same as it is now, is the same as it was in Bacchus's, right? When Bacchus published his paper, uh, which is which is how you get, how you describe things that evolve in time is this von Neumann, uh, this von Neumann um, paradigm, which, which is a sequence in time of effects. And then unlike graphics, right? In graphics, you should do all your effects and then show the cumulative result. Right as a single image, right? So, so you may have that was something called double buffering, which is, in fact was my, the very first thing I worked on at Sun. It's a completely uninteresting, horrible thing, but it, it just the mechanism is the mechanics of double buffering. The idea there is is that all your effects on a on the frame buffer are going to be in this off screen buffer, right? Because because right, like you, you start by you erase the the frame buffer. This, We'll call it the screen, but it's not really the screen. It's really some memory. You erase it. You start side effecting into it. You do a bunch of effects, say roughly a million or a billion of them. And then when you have enough of them, you say, okay, now look. Okay, close your eyes while I do all this. And then now open your eyes and look. Okay. And why you do that is because nothing before you're finished is the truth. Or I shouldn't say that. Uh, uh, it's because much of what as much of what you would look at before you're finished is just this thing that's on its way to an image. So for, for instance, in 3D graphics, there's a kind of, well, they used to do back to front drawing. You draw the, 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 the rearmost, the most distant objects first, then the ones that are nearmost first, right? So, because when you're done, the, the ones that are further from your eye should be occluded, right? So if you looked before it was done, you would see things you couldn't see. They're not part of the true image, okay? Okay, well, we don't do that anymore since we have Z buffers. Since memory got cheap enough to have to actually have memory, uh, we don't do something like that. But we, but we still have like we still are side affecting it. You still see things that that you know you don't have to order them from furthest to closest anymore. But they're still the intermediate states are not part of the true image, so you shouldn't look at them. Okay, all imperative programming has this problem. All imperative programming, right? Is is you have a bunch of effects. And at some point, the accumulation of the effects is trying to express something true. Up to there, all you have is this partially done thing whose nature has not, has very little to do with the correct answer and very much to do with like the order of operations, the arbitrary order of operations you happened to follow on the way to the right answer. Okay. So that's why when you do graphics, you should do your rendering off screen so that you can show the previous true thing. You build up the next thing incrementally until it gets to the truth, and then you replace the previous one with it. Okay. All right. So that, that, that's kind of what people do. And then, then animation is you do that over and over, right? Or what they call it, animation or just live graphics or whatever, interactive graphics. All right. But there's, that, but, there's, but there's still a fundamental bug in this whole paradigm. And this fundamental bug is in most things people do with computers. Okay. Which, which, which is it's it's a uh, which is temporal discreteness, okay. So so if you use if you use the von Neumann notion of effects and that effects are ordered in time, 
If you use that in order to portray time, then you cannot help to impose discreteness on time. Okay? And time is not discrete. Okay? So imperative programming builds in a fundamental bug when you apply it to time, which is discreteness, where time is continuous. Now, a lot of people don't understand that, and they say, in the end, it's going to be displayed by a computer anyway, whatever. But they don't realize that that, that that bug breaks compositionality, and compositionality is our superpower for solving problems. Compositionality is one of the worst possible things to break. And when and whenever you introduce uh, approximation and discreteness, discrete is an approximation of continuous, okay? Uh, finite resolution is an approximation of infinite resolution. It's the same thing, but in space instead of time. Okay, so whenever whenever you have a programming model that has approximations built in, then and your model is compositional. If it's not compositional, you can't do anything of interest with it. If it is compositional and it builds approximation in, guess what? When you compose approximations, you lose the property that 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 uh, what you get is roughly correct. So an approximation is roughly correct. When you approach approximations, you get something that is no longer approximately correct. You get something that is grossly incorrect. So every programming notion that includes approximation, which includes discreteness in time and space, okay, every every uh, 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 vocabulary right, that you would use to describe things that has that kind of error built into it is going to be uh, uh, what? It is not going to have nice compositional properties. It won't compose. And composition is our problem-solving superpower. And how do you solve it? Has, it? Yeah, how do you solve it? It's very simple, which is you don't approximate. Can you without? Yeah, yes. Okay. So when I say you don't approximate, it's a little tongue-in-cheek. You do approximate. However, the problem isn't approximating. The problem is approximating before composing. Okay. So the solution is you you compose before approximating. You don't approximate and then compose. You compose and then approximate. Okay, and this insight is exactly what functional reactive programming, which which came out of the work I did at Sun. So at Sun, I I, I did most of that work, continuous time and space, uh, for interactive graphics that were compositional, typed, and so on. Right, what what we call functional uh, these days, but in a more genuine sense than people use the term today. Uh, and then I approximated after composition, not before. And I did that in time and in space. Okay. Now that's something that it may sound weird, but we've already been through this in space. Okay. Uh, uh, I think, I think it's more deeply uncomfortable to programmers in time because they, they themselves are so deeply programmed by the von Neumann model, which is fundamentally defective. Okay. So, but in space, like, um, uh, in, in space, we used to use bitmap graphics. Uh, let, me, let me talk about fonts. Okay. When, when we drew text, our fonts were pixelated. Okay. So, uh, so fonts, a collection of characters, a, cl a character is, is a bitmap. Okay. And, and our graphics APIs were bitmap APIs. Okay. So you have bitmaps, you scale, zoom, rotate, blah, 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 bitmaps, you, you, you compose them, right? You, you layer them and so on. All right. So that's an example of, of, of uh, approximating and then composing, okay? Because a bitmap is an approximation of a continuous thing. It's a discrete approximation of a continuous thing. It's also a finite approximation of an infinite thing. 
Okay, so bitmaps are doubly, a bitmaps is you, you take an infinite continuous thing, you throw away almost all information. You throw away almost everything in extent, right? And then you, you take this tiny little thing and then you sample it almost nowhere. In other words, infinitely many places, whereas the actual image is uncountably infinite, right? Because it's continuous. Okay. So, so it used to be with, with, you know, graphics APIs, they were discrete and in particular, uh, like, um, uh, fonts, uh, typesetting, uh, um, what people used to call desktop publishing was discrete. Right. So, so, so you, you would, you would have these bitmaps and then you would apply, you know, you'd move them around and so on, but you'd also scale them. And when you zoom in on a bitmap, you magnify its errors. Okay. When you zoom in on a continuous image, there is no error. It's perfect to begin with, and it's perfect when, you, when you're done zooming. Okay? And, and we made that paradigm shift. Okay? We stopped using bitmap fonts, and we switched to outline fonts. Outline fonts are continuous and perfect. Okay? And that, another way to say is that is the resolution independent. One way to say is they're continuous, another way to say it is a resolution independent. So you can zoom in on them forever. They have no pixels. Okay. Now you do that. Now you do that in time. Okay. So, and, but, but before you get to time, um, not only do bitmap graphics um, are ugly, right? Well, they're ugly when you zoom in because you magnify the error. They're, if they're inefficient when you zoom out because, because you're working on every single pixel, even though you zoomed out so far, you can't see any of them or, or hardly any of them or something like that. So, so every discrete system, including almost 100% of what people call functional reactive programming because they fundamentally missed the idea and they reinvented the bugs that I invented functional reactive, reactive programming to solve. They reinvented the bugs and don't understand. Um, so so the, uh, you, every discrete system is both unnecessarily in, uh, imprecise and unnecessarily inefficient. And to fix that, you have to go continuous. Now, it's not just a, not just a pragmatic win, but it's also a theoretical win because approximations have no nice mathematical properties. They have no nice mathematical theory, but continuous perfect things do. It's like, it, it reminds me of your initial example of the fractal, right? Like when you program the yes. fractal, you can zoom in forever. But in this case, yes. taking the discrete, the discrete things as if you took a screenshot of the fractal and you're trying to zoom in, you're not going to be able to see the whole fractal because it's not there. Exactly. It's, it's not exactly. But it's still right, not yeah. weird. It's still not very clear to me how this maps back, this continuity and discrete problem maps back to the um, von Neumann machine issue. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'll go back to that. So it had to do with time. Okay. So, so in space, we used to program discreetly. And then we figured out for a variety of pragmatic reasons that we should program continuously instead. So fonts are one example. Uh, what you call geometry, 2D and 3D geometry is another example. Uh, what you might call uh, vector graphics, that's another example. Okay, so we learned that in space. Um, and and programmers, I think, they didn't seem to have a lot of difficulty. They probably, you know, a few of them did at the time. But but that transition is not very, is not fundamentally threatening to the von Neumann model. But if you if you take that same insight and apply it consistently, it is extremely threatening to the von Neumann paradigm. What I mean by consistently is you apply it to time as well as space. Okay, so if you apply if you apply this understanding, which, which is uh, continuous, it uh, has better compositional properties and better semantics, better mathematical models uh, than discrete. 
for a fundamental reason, which is which is that approximations don't compose well, and uh, and perfection does. Okay, you apply that to time. What you find out is that you have to completely change your idea about how you implement things that vary with time and how you uh, within the von Neumann model, how you describe them within the von Neumann model, right? Because time has a relationship to the von Neumann model that space does not. Okay, in physics we know that time and space are intricately related, right? They're 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 interconnected. They're part of a single fabric. Right? We we we've known that now for more than a hundred years. Okay, uh, Newton didn't know that. But thanks to Einstein, we know that, and Minkowski, we know that. Okay, so so it's it's should be very suspicious that it, in programming, when you see when you see time and space treated so differently. So in this period of history, right, we we have graduated from treating space discreetly, most of us, to treating continuously. We have not graduated, most of us, from treating time uh, discreetly to continuously. Okay, now if you look, if you try to make that transition, you'll I think you'll run into a, a deep cognitive dissonance. If you have been conditioned by the von Neumann model of computation, right? If you've been programmed by that model, because the way that people would describe things that vary with time is in a loop, right? Step, they have a, they have a, step, right? Exactly. Step a, exactly. Yeah. Now, how often can you run a loop? Right. You can run it well the faster your computer is the more often you can run it or, or or the less work it's doing the more often you can run it a combination but can you run it infinitely often no you cannot it running a loop infinitely often is inconsistent with the very fundamental idea of von neumann computation and that's what loops are for loops are 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 are, are tied to the von neumann uh, model of computation I mean, so the loops in which you have state and you update and like like before functional programming as far as i know that that's what uh, that's what you know animation programs were. Um, you know, there's probably somebody did some work. Actually, Albicaria did work that was very inspiring to me. But even that work was fundamentally discrete uh, in, in time. So it was, and, and in fact, it was really John Reynolds I mentioned before. John Reynolds who who noticed this that that, that uh, if, if if you take function if you take animation, you make it functional, and you put it uh, you make it functional. But you keep it discrete animation. So when you things at various time, if you keep it discrete, you get you get a relatively clumsy result. Okay, he he noticed that. I happened to be in the room when he made this observation, and it, and it changed my world. It lit me up. I went back to my office, wrote down this idea, and it, what he said was, "Have you considered?" He, he said, "You can think of a lazy list." And so the, this Caviar's model was an animation is a is a lazy list of images, of pictures. His were stick figures. Doesn't matter. It's a lazy list. And, and a lot of what Kavi did was very elegant, but then Kavi wanted to do some interpolation and stuff, which involved dealing with time in a way that wasn't just sequences and it was clumsy. And John Reynolds noticed it. John Reynolds, that was, that was one of his superpowers. Like he noticed this is fishy. And he said, he said to Kavi, uh, he said, you know, your model is based on lazy lists, let's say infinite sequences, which you can think of as being a function of the natural numbers. Okay. This is a deep insight. Not everybody knows this. A lazy list is isomorphic. An infinite sequence is isomorphic to a function from the naturals. Okay. Now, why on earth is that worth pointing out? Because of what John Middle said next. He said, he, he said, have you thought about function from the reals instead? If you do, you might find that these problems you're having with interpolations that monkeying with time go away. 
And I knew John was right. And this was an incredibly valuable, profound idea. I went back to my office and I wrote it down and I promised myself I would not think about it again until I finished my dissertation or I never would finish my dissertation. <laughs> so then when I was at Sun Microsystems, right, it was, then now it was finally time I got to do computer graphics and, and I pulled out this idea of continuous time and I explored it and found that indeed he was completely right. This is how we make things that vary with time, have lovely mathematical properties, be nicely compositional, but it has to be continuous and not discrete. And that's really what does it. And that means that you have to think about things that vary with time in a completely different model from the von Neumann model of a loop, okay? B because a loop, you can only step through it finitely often. Maybe it's fast, but it's still finite. If you translate to functional programming and you replace your loops by, say, lazy lists, doesn't address the problem at all. You're done. It's just a more elegant way to do discrete time. Yeah. You have to get out of discrete time. So it seems to me that it's, a, what does that. it's all about actually describing the mathematical model behind this bending of your image. What is actually happening? You know, as a yeah. function of time, and you cannot do that exactly. with, with a loop. Exactly, exactly, it's one step exactly. After the other in the loop, but exactly, that's, not, that's right. not exactly what this bending is is doing. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah, right. Yeah, and it, it's such an important, it's such an important insight because there's something that's obvious to many people, and that's dead wrong. Okay, <laughs> okay? and it happens yeah. in like, for instance, space and time, but it happens everywhere, and they'll reason like this. Suppose you want to make a graphics library, something that manipulates images. Okay. What am I going to, what am I going to feed into that library? I'm going to pull some JPEGs off a disc. Okay. JPEGs are bitmaps, finite, discrete, rectangular. Okay. What am I, okay. That's what I'm going to stick into the system. What am I going to get out of the system? Same thing. Can get out a bunch of finite, rectangular, discrete, right? Bitmaps. Okay. Therefore this, that's what this library should manipulate. Finite, discrete, uh, bitmaps. Okay. That's dead wrong. That reasoning is dead wrong. Okay. Uh, you, you can apply the same reasoning to time. So as I want to take in some like videos or something, right? Time or whatever, or, 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 or behavior, right? And, and, and because of my computer technology, they're going to be discrete coming in because my computer technology, they're going to be discrete going out. Therefore, this library, this compositional language, this vocabulary should have that nature too. Okay. That's a very common kind of reasoning and it's dead wrong. Okay. It, it, it's wrong in two ways. The one way that it's wrong is that it is that it's an unnecessary conclusion. In other words, it doesn't follow from the premises. The other is that it's disastrous. It's a disastrous uh, conclusion to make. I was going to say choice, but people don't understand it's a choice because of the, because their reasoning, you know, prevents them from seeing other choices. Yeah. So compositionality depends on perfection. If computer technology takes away, introduces imperfect things and produces them, okay, that's about computers. It has nothing to do, right? That, 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 that's like, that's a defect of your telescope or your microscope, right? That has nothing to do. That, that, so, so if I'm going to let the nature of my device affect what I see through it, that's a malfunction, this is like a, Alan Watts talked about, uh, he said, he said, if you see your eyes, you have cataracts. <laughs> if you hear your ears, you have tinnitus. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's a malfunction of the organism. Okay. He went on to say, if you experience an eye, a self, it's the same malfunction of the organism. 
Okay. So this is, this, this is, the, this is his mystical conclusion. Okay? <laughs> I personally like this very, I like this very much mm, yeah. that, that it's, it's a, it's a defect. Right. So, but, but so in, in other words, it just shattered uh, my I, ego right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're so much to think about. Oh my God. Sorry. Yeah. 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 So, so, so when, when we as API designers, right. Programmers, API designers, when we take the limitations of our tool and we use them to shape the language, right? That people, the, the, the language we offer people in which to express their ideas, in which right to map from information space into physics, into computation, right? Right. We have, we're giving them a broken tool. It, it, it's like, it's like saying here, have some cataracts. Enjoy that. Right here, make your ears ring, right? Or have an ego, right? It, it breaks the tool, yeah. So, so, so that that's why it, that, that that's what it, it's it's disastrous to um, come to that conclusion, to believe that conclusion. Yeah, yeah. Is and, that and, what and, I, what it, functional yeah. reactive programming is? Is this idea of that's it? Yeah, functional reactive programming is. It, there's one simple idea. There's and there's one meta idea. Okay, so functional reactive programming is, is, is there's one meta idea that applies, I think, to everything everybody should ever do. It certainly applies to everything I do, which, which is you should understand what you're talking about in the simplest, most elegant compositional terms. That is that is denotational semantics. That's what I call giving having a denotation. Okay, everything. So all your types have a mathematical model. It's a simple, and of course, it has to be precise. Otherwise, simplicity is is an illusion. Okay, so it's as simple as it can possibly be. And then every operation that you provide can be fully explained in terms of that model. Fully in terms of that model. And that model has nothing to do with the implementation at all. Okay, so, so it, it, it's a very severe discipline that forces you to, to think in the clearest, well, it encourages you to think in the clearest possible way about what you're trying to say independent of any bias about implementation. Okay? That's very hard for people who have been conditioned to think that programming is about making machines do stuff. Okay. Right. Oh, be, 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 because because any, anything, you know, if you think computation and if you've been taught operational semantics and operational thinking and like, like uh, uh, linear algebra is about arrays and machine learning is about neural nets, all these like arbitrary bad choices about particular representation or programming is about sequences of effects, all these harmful ways to look at things, all right, then you will not be able to give a clear way to express ideas and to and to be able to you know to look at them and to sharpen your ideas, improve your ideas in the process, yeah. And so, functional reactive programming is exactly an expression of a meta idea and an idea. The meta idea is is understand everything you want to understand what you want to say before you decide how you want to try and say it. Okay, and understand it clearly and precisely use, using elegant tools or mathematics. That's why denotational. That why you love category theory so much. Do you think that's the mm. right tool to express this beauty precisely or it is not why, but it is related. Okay. Okay. So so let me let me just kind of finish that. So what the meta principle is, the denotation is compositional. The principle is continuous time. That's it. That's it. Huh. Th those are the one and a half, you know, or the or the one or two uh, uh, important things about uh, functional reactive programming. Okay. Now almost everything 
almost everything, I would say roughly everything you have ever, you know, you've ever seen and heard and haven't yet that people are calling FRP has neither of those properties. Fundamentally misses the point. <laughs> it is discrete. It is non-denotational. It is based on some weird operational idea like graphs of things and propagation and updates that, of course, are discrete um, and effects, right? It's, it's like completely wrong. It's not just wrong. It's the opposite of right, you know, I mean, it's, oh, no. it's pointing, it's pointing, you know, in the very opposite direction. And, and it recreates exactly the problem that John Reynolds pointed out with, with, with discreteness. And of course, it recreates the problem that denotational semantics was invented to, uh, to solve, which is we don't understand what programming languages are, and therefore we cannot use them to express ideas clearly. So the question was, if that's why you love, you use category theory so much, do you think that's Ah, the... yeah. So category theory, um, no, um, no, but <laughs> so remember we said, I mentioned there are, there, there are kind of three popular models of semantics. Okay, there's operational, which by which is nowadays by far the most popular, and I think by far the most damaging, and it's set science back, and hopefully, science, hopefully, computer science will become a science in spite of it. Um, and, and then there's denotational semantics, which I think I think that was the gym that got lost, and and I said how I think that got lost because it told the truth in an unflattering and inconvenient way. Um, and then there's axiomatic. Okay, axiomatic is, is sort of this this idea of we're going to have we're going to have some properties. Okay. We're, gonna, we're just going to have mathematical properties. It's kind of, it's kind of, sort of a bit Euclidean. It's like we're going to define these things and have properties. I'm not, we're not going to define these things. We're going to introduce names and then talk about properties of them. Okay, long, you know, in the in the millennia since Euclid, we kind of organized our abilities, right, to to to, to like talk about these patterns of properties, and that became what we call algebra now. I mean, abstract algebra. So like uh, uh, groups, rings, you know, monoids. Uh, uh, fields, vector spaces, uh, and categories. Okay, so so category theory comes out of a tradition of algebra. Algebra is all about identifying patterns of operations and properties. It's basically taking what Euclid did, and and and, and what we did since then, right? Of, of finding all these kind of interesting things, and then noticing that they have kind of somewhat similar and related operations and properties. Okay, uh, uh, um, so there are things like different kinds of numbers. Uh, you got real numbers, and you have integers, and they both have addition. And addition is associative and commutative, right? And it has an identity. Uh, you have uh, lists uh, of things and, and uh, finite lists, and and they have uh, they form a monoid. It was one of these algebraic patterns. You 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 have a you have a, a, an associative operation append, and you have an identity for it. It's a left and right identity, the empty list. Right, um, and so together that forms a pattern, and, and because we've seen that pattern over and over, we give it a name, monoid. Uh, it, 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 there are other things you might try to add, like commutativity. Turns out, nope, this uh, with a pin is not commutative. But there are other things that do. So addition, that's a, also a monoid, and it's a commutative. Um, also, it does something else that lists don't do, which is which is you have uh, additive inverses um, uh, for, for numbers and you don't have that for lists. So, so there are these patterns and, 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 and then you have patterns like, what about multiplication and addition? Okay. Well, there's just a couple of monoids, right? Multiplication addition is like, you know, they, they're both monoids. So they both have a uh, associative operation uh, identity. And sometimes, you know, um, maybe depending on what you're talking about, maybe addition is commutative and uh, multiplication isn't. 
uh, for instance, for square matrices. Um, uh, um, so, so the, so, the, so there. Oh, and, and but then there's a relationship between addition and multiplication. Okay, so so addition and multiplication isn't just a pair of monoids. It's it's a it's a pair of monoids that have a a beautiful interaction between them, which is distributivity, which, which is that multi, multiplication uh, multiplication distributes over addition. Okay, and if you think of zero as being kind of nullary no addition, then multiplication distributes over it as well. We call that annihilation. Sometimes zero times x equals zero. And, and a plus b times x is a times x plus b, b times x. Okay, so so that, so the, these are these algebraic patterns, and they're very powerful for organizing reasoning. Okay, so just like we like as programmers, we want to write reusable programs. Okay, so that's why that's why it's really important that we have uh, we have parameterization, right? So that we can make these things that have flexibility that can be used in more than one way, you give them parameters. And if you fill in the parameters this way, it does this for you. Fill in that way, you do that for you. Maybe you can combine those two different uses and so on, right? So that's, that's modularity. It gives us reuse. It's a tremendous magnifier, uh, amplifier of, of our effort, okay? Algebra is the same thing, but about reasoning. So if we, we want to reason about things, we're going to use properties. But similar as with programming, the mathematicians discovered before us that, that there's a great amount of reusability that we can do in our reasoning. And algebra is, is one of the most potent tools in doing that. It allows us to do reasoning that is parameterized by, so it's not specific to one mathematical kind of a thing like numbers, but it doesn't apply to all mathematical things either. It's in between. It, 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 you, know, you do some reasoning that applies to all things that have addition and multiplication where uh, maybe the uh, multiplication is commutative for this thing, but it doesn't have to be for that thing. Uh, and you can, you can, you know, make proofs and then you can reuse them in a lot of different situations. Okay. So that's what algebra is for. Category theory is an example of algebra. It's more than an example of algebra. Category theory itself ties together all kinds of different areas of algebra. So just like ring theory generalizes a bunch of different things. Category theory generalizes ring theory and group theory and uh, linear algebra and all kinds of stuff like that. So it's it, it, another algebra and it's also something bigger than that. Now, why do we care about a category theory in particular in programming? Well, we do and we don't. We care about algebra in programming because of its reusability, especially if we care about correctness. And correctness, I think, is is like the most important thing about programming, understanding what it is I'm trying to say and knowing whether I'm right. And that's what almost no programming languages support, but dependently typed programming languages do. That's why dependently typed programming languages are uh, a completely different kind of beast. And and that, I believe, is what will take us to the next level of, of uh, we'll make programming into a science. Um, but, but so why category theory for programming in particular, in a way it's like, no, it's just another thing. Monoids theory is useful, group theory is useful and so on. But category theory is useful for kind of a special reason, which is it is the right algebraic structure for function-like things and programs are function-like things. Okay. Now there's a funny thing you may not have realized and, and this gets to like why, why I got so interested in it. Um, Take, a, say you want to do programming. You're going, you're going to pick a language. You can pick a von Neumann language or a functional language. Or what, what Let's pick Python. Huh? Let's pick Python. Great choice. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. So, so, so 
So there, um, you could you could ask questions about how what does my Python program mean? Okay, now most Python programmers ask that only in the vaguest, you know, semi-conscious way. All right, if they asked it in a very conscious way, I think they'd soon stop using Python. But um, they have to, at some level, every programmer has to care at some level about what their program means because it's the only thing that guides them to choose to write one thing versus another, right? Is some at least vague sense of what their program means, right? They have some vague sense of, of, uh, of uh, this program is right and that program is wrong, or this is the next thing I should write and that thing isn't or something like that, right? So they at least have some vague notion, okay? But uh, if you want a clearer notion of what programming means, you have to you have you have a couple of choices at least. One is work really hard to understand what your Python program means. Okay, if you do that, it will be a, a tremendous amount of work, and the answer is so complex that you will choose to what quit your profession. I'm no longer going to program now that I've seen what I've seen. I can no longer I cannot go back. Okay, that's one choice. Uh, another choice is um, uh, what. I'm going to stop caring, I suppose. I'm going to pay the bills, but I'm going to lose heart. That's a, that's a terrible, tragic thing. Um, another thing you might do is just, you know, somehow divorce what you've seen from what you do and somehow, you know, enjoy both of them. Another thing you might do is, is, is say, is there a better way? Right? And now that, now that I, I, I've seen how complex the meaning of Python program is, and I recognize my own limited cognitive abilities, Okay. The combination of those two things means inevitably people who write programs in Python cannot understand their own work. Okay. Why? Because, because what means a Python program is extremely complex and their brains are limited in what they can do cognitively. Okay. You can solve the problem of, I don't understand my program by switching languages to a language that has simple semantics, purely functional. That's a better word, purely denotative languages. Okay have that property. That's why they matter. And that's what Bacchus was trying to tell us. Okay. So if you really want to understand your, your, your programming, switch to a language that is simple enough that our low level of intelligence or our specific kind of intelligence can cope with it. Denotative languages have that property. Okay. But now we can go further. Now we can, we can have a very, a, 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 a pragmatically simple, pragmatically simple means it's simple uh, it's simple enough for humans to understand it. Okay, that's what we mean by pragmatically. Given our limitations, it's simple enough. Without those limitations, you know, it wouldn't be so important. Okay, so so now that I, I'm working in a paradigm that is simple enough for me to fully understand it in a practical way and use it, and that's true of denotative programming. I routinely design programs from specifications and prove their correctness. I do that routinely, and I have for decades. That cannot be done in any practical sense with the paradigm programming. Okay. So, but I got interested in another question, which is what other meanings can my programs have besides this one? Okay. So working in a denotative, oh, loosely functional, but it's not what most people mean by functional anymore. Working in a denotative language, I'm able to answer that question. This is what my program means. But then another question comes up. What else could it mean besides that one? Are there other, are there other meanings? Well, of course you could just make up other meanings, but that's, but they might not have, not have nice properties. Okay. So what is the minimum thing you need for a purely functional, nicely typed program to have a well-behaved meaning? Okay. And the answer is um, 
the meaning could be any Cartesian closed category. Okay, so cat so so the meanings we usually give to functional programs is computable functions. Okay, so a computable function is one of these Platonic things. It's a mathematical thing. It has the function. Computability has a certain uh, technical thing that has to do with what's called continuity. Uh, in in a certain information lattice. This is what Dana Scott invented. This was a brilliant revolutionary insight. Okay, uh, so so that's that's one interpretation. But one day I was due to circumstances, I I found myself wondering. Um, I found myself wondering how to compile Haskell programs into hardware. Okay, I was working at a hardware company. I was hired. They had a very innovative uh, hardware design that was an architecture called space-time that was genuinely based on uh, Minkowski's uh, notion of space-time on which general relativity uh, it, it was described, it was necessary for Einstein to describe general relativity. Minkowski was Einstein's, one of his professors. Um, so I, I had the job, it was my job to figure out how do you compile Haskell into this space-time architecture? Is it, it was a, a temporally dynamically reconfigurable hardware hardware that, that reprogrammed itself 2 billion times a second. Okay. Radical revolutionary hardware design. I was hired to figure out how to program it in a non-vanoian way, specifically in purely functional hardware. When I say pure, I mean, denotational. I mean, hard, I mean like what, what functional program used to be beautiful math. Okay. So in order to solve that problem, I talked to people and I finally had an epiphany and I realized that I realized that hardware, you know, Hardware design, hardware can be expressed, computational hardware can be expressed in the language of categories. Okay, how I got there was um, uh, I was trying to understand timing analysis in hardware. I'm a software guy. What do I, I don't know how timing analysis. That's just not something that comes up, it's nothing we're freed from, but it actually is super interesting. Okay, so I was trying to understand timing analysis to fill in some of my gap, my deficiency of not having a good hardware background. And I talked to many people and I was unsatisfied. I mean, they they were the hardware guys. I wasn't, but I knew that they were not telling me something essential. So I kept asking different people. Finally, I asked somebody who told me something in a way that kind of made a little, some mathematical pattern light up in my head. And I realized that time analysis is a form of linear algebra in a funny, different sort of way, where instead of addition and multiplication, you have max and addition. So multiplication gets replaced by addition, addition gets replaced by max. Okay, there, there's, a, there's a, a dual analysis that they do in timing analysis, where you, instead of max, you do min. Turned out, and, and then I thought about that, thought, that's awfully weird that this thing that seems to do timing analysis is just like linear algebra with this funny changing of what the operations meant. And then I wondered, it's like, huh, what operations do plus and max have? What operations do times and plus have? And I, and I realized they have they have the same essential properties. They both form a semi-ring. And, and part of that is that multiplication distributes over addition and addition distributes over max. And I thought, that's really interesting. I never heard of anything like that before. It turned out there's a whole field called tropical semi-rings, which people know that <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know it before. I wow. stumbled into it on my own. Yeah. So, so just that process. And, and, and then, and then timing analysis, I realized when you have parallel computations, all right. And you want to do like, how long is it going to take for a signal to propagate through a computation? The answer is the max. If you're, if you're going to pass them through like parallel computations, signal through, you know, you, you take some information, you duplicate it, pass it through two computations in parallel. 
when, how long do you have to wait till you get the right answer? And the answer is the maximum on how long you have to wait for each one, right? Because you got to wait for each, like the late, you know, the first one that gets done. Okay, you only have half the right answer. You got to wait till the next one gets done. Okay. And then, and then what if you, what if you sequentially compose them? Well, that's a lot more complicated, but, 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 but kind of thinking that through, because you've got all these different pathways that information takes. And then you end up having like a bunch of maxes and a, bu and a bunch of maxes and a bunch of additions. And it was exactly that pattern of maxes and additions that I recognized was dot products and matrix multiplication, except that where I would expect to see times, I saw plus and where I expect to see plus, I saw max. That was, that was the thing. And then I realized, oh, there's linear algebra in a weird sort of way going on here. But that process got me kind of thinking about timing analysis in a compositional way. And I realized, oh, parallel sequential composition, that's the language of categories, parallel sequential composition. That, those are the fundamental building blocks of, comp, of, of, of functions, computation in particular. Okay. And so if timing analysis can be described compositionally in that way, it's true because hardware can be described compositionally in that way. Okay. So if I describe hardware in that language, which happens to be the language of categories, which I knew almost nothing about, and timing analysis then follows that compositional structure in a beautiful way. Something about that thought process got me just kind of tick, tick, tick thinking. And I remembered something I heard in grad school. I was in grad school in the early 80s. And in 1980, uh, Joachim Lambeck uh, discovered that um, the type, simply type lambda calculus, well, it has more than one model. Okay. So computable functions, simply computer functions is one model, but there are others. Okay, what are they? Uh, Lambeck completely answered that question. He said the, 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 the models for the type lambda calculus, meaning the mathematical values that you could imagine that that language is describing, okay, and the operations of the lambda calculus interpreted on those things, okay, agreeing with the laws that Alonzo Church set out, alpha, beta, eta, right, the laws of the lambda calculus, Okay, so which, what interpretations can you give these things that we're used to just saying they mean functions, right? And composition means composition of functions and so on. But what other meanings could you give them, right? That would have all these nice math properties. And, and, and Lambic, he answered that problem exactly. And the answer is all, uh, is all of the Cartesian closed categories and nothing else. So in other words, everything. So it, it would be like saying, the answer is all monoids and nothing else, or the answer is all rings and nothing else. So if you want to, like, how do I interpret this arithmetic expression, right? In a certain way that has these properties. And the answer sometimes is all of the rings, all of the semi-rings, all of the vector spaces, all of the monoids, something like that. So the answer is exactly that. And that is the answer that's for the simply type lambda calculus. So, so if you pick any one, if you pick any mathematical model, that has these algebraic properties, this algebraic structure, vocabulary, and has those properties, then indeed it's a model of the lambda calculus and it behaves, it satisfies exactly the properties, okay? And if you pick anything else, it doesn't, okay? So I learned that in grad school and, and that just kind of like sat in my brain and I just had no idea that there was anything practical at all about that piece of information in my brain <laughs> until that one day working for this hardware company and then having this insight about timing analysis, it somehow, you know, reached through my right, neural pathways and found this other piece of information I hadn't thought about for years. And it said, oh, that's funny. There's this other thing about cart about categories that I learned. So I just learned, I realized today that circuits can be described 
in terms of categories, in, in the language of categories. And if you do, then timing analysis is, is very, has a very elegant uh, uh, definition, very elegant uh, formulation, compositional. And then that trickled, it somehow found its way to this other thing I'd forgotten in my head that was that, that, uh, that uh, the Cartesian closed categories are exactly the models of the type lambda calculus. In other words, they're exactly the reasonable meanings that you can assign to functional programs. Okay. Okay. And my job was, how do I compile Haskell to hardware? And I did not know how to solve that problem until that moment when I made that connection was that, was that I knew that Haskell translates to a very simple type lambda calculus. Okay. It's not just simply type lambda calculus. That, 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 that's a little trickier part of the story, but it translates to a small core lambda calculus. And I knew that lambda calculus can be interpreted in any Cartesian closed category. And I realized that hardware was at least a Cartesian category. And if I was lucky, a closed one. Therefore, I, therefore, the answer to my puzzle that I had no idea until that moment how to solve is I take Haskell, pass it into core, trans, translate core from lambda calculus into the language of categories and interpret it not in the usual category I've always unconsciously, you know, I've always unconsciously picked computable functions, but in this other one of hardware. And that is, and that, I, that insight was exactly right. And, and I went on to, uh, uh, to, to um, compile Haskell into our, uh, our radically non-von Neumann hardware exactly in that way. Um, and it was a success. And these Haskell programs actually ran as hardware. Uh, beautiful program, not, not, not kludgy programs, beautiful programs that, 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 you know, that, that give, that connect us with this deep insight and sharpen our understanding and, 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 uh, and prompt us to ask better questions than we would have imagined before that, that kind of uh, beautiful functional programs. And that was when I, that was when I got it, how important category theory is. And I also, of course, I had to realize that the answer I got was much bigger than the question I was asking, which is how to ha compile Haskell to hardware. Be, 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 because right, the, because what I discovered was that, that this path of translate Haskell into a category and interpret it, you know, translate Haskell into the language of categories and interpret in a in an unusual category, unusual for computation. There's a lot of Cartesian closed category. I'd only picked one. This must be just scratching the surface of a very, very powerful idea, and that's the idea I call compiling the categories. Wow! Um, that, and that... anybody anybody could have done this since 1980. <laughs> but it took you to realize how to connect the dots or the, those random neuron pathways that just formed in your head at that time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So I was lucky enough to be, you know, kind of thinking about things and of, of, of like what looking for beauty and not being satisfied when I didn't have it. Okay. So if ever I have an unbeautiful yeah. answer, I know that I haven't reached, I know there's something better. Something right. Better. So and like stubbornly, stubbornly yeah yeah so i so that that's why i was unsatisfied with every other answer i got from a hardware person about what timing analysis was of course they knew and i didn't so it was kind of like absurdly arrogant of me to essentially not believe them <laughs> right but 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 entirely justified as experts don't understand they don't understand the essence they understand their coping mechanisms what? it really is a very unusual expert who understands the essence of a question and can distinguish it from their coping mechanism for being taught a really inelegant way to, to even 
frame a question. Yeah. What would you have done so, if you could not find this path, though? Because you could just have got <laughs> stuck, right? <laughs> yeah, I do not know. <laughs> well, I guess the answer is I would have failed. I mean, because I, I, I was like a not. I was, I was not going to come up with an ugly answer. That's yeah, of course yeah. what. Would, that's of course what a good employee. That's yeah. what the stockholders would have wanted. You know, that's what capitalism would have wanted from me. But you already made very clear that you're not backing down in your your elegance. Not doing it. Not doing that. Yeah, exactly. You'd probably have been fired um, then. (laughs) Maybe, maybe I would have been fired. You know? Yeah, sure. Maybe. Who knows? Yeah. So, yeah, and and, you know, and there are plenty of people in the world who have mediocrity covered, right? Yeah. Right. So there are plenty of people in the world who like will do short-term expedient things that make that get them good performance reviews and increase the stock price and all that bullshit that has no lasting value. (laughs) That's not you. No lasting value. Right. So Angelo, you were, I I noticed that you wanted to ask something maybe. Uh, Oh yeah, please. Oh yeah. Uh, So I'm curious about how you got introduced to like computation in general. You said you did your undergrad in mathematics, but I don't, I'm I'm not sure whether like where it all started. Oh yeah, heck yeah! I was in high school, so so I was in high school. Let's see, so I was born in 1961. I, I turned 61 this year, um, and so I was in high school from uh, I started in 1974. I also skipped a grade in there. I was a little young, so I started high school in 1974. All right, there were not personal computers then. Maybe there was like the Altair, some something or other with switches and lights. I'm not quite. I forget exactly the timing of that, but like uh, so, uh, and I discovered. In high school, it really wasn't until high school I discovered like math. Um, I think for a lot, I think for the same reason as a lot of people, because they because what they, because they're taught something horrible and told that it's called that that's what math is. Right? They're taught yeah. how to be a computing automaton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, in a really uncreative way, and the label math is attached to it. Yep. And that's a tragedy, yeah. of course, right? Okay, yeah. you relate. Okay, yeah, exactly. So I had no idea that there was that there was something else <laughs> that 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 um, that was beautiful that that was math, and I discovered that in high school. Okay, uh, and and I suppose uh, algebra was somewhat, and I guess that was eighth grade for me, and uh, but then geometry in ninth grade. That turned my life around. Okay, geometry is, is where I was introduced to the idea of proof in any sort of conscious way, right? That that, 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 that you know, proofs are thing. There's a, there's a thing that is a proof, and that there are there are ways to make proof. There are rules of inference, and there are ways to chain things together, right? And 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 you can prove that 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 like turned my life around. That was just a, a, a really life changing thing. And then I then I was really in love with math, algebra. I was like, oh, this is really kind of fun and this kind of simple game. But geometry, the idea of, of proof, systematic way of exploring what is true, uh, of, of growing knowledge. Um, and that's what we still, computer science has not grown into and can. And there's no excuse not to. Um, so, uh, so, oh, how did I get into computation? Uh, yeah, well, I was in the Star Trek club in, in high school. And uh, 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 a couple of the other kids in the high, uh, had lived in Berkeley. And in Berkeley, there's a place called the Lawrence Hall of Science. Uh, it's, uh, it's attached to UC Berkeley. Lawrence Hall of Science. And at Lawrence Hall of Science, what these kids knew that none of us Hicks knew uh, is, that, uh, is that there were computers in this building. And, and, and that 
people in the public could go on maybe Saturdays, maybe it was just Saturdays. Uh, you could go to Lawrence Hall of Science, and I lived in Lodi, which is in the Central Valley in California. So Lawrence Hall of Science was like two, two and a half hour drive. Um, but you could go on a Saturday and you could pay, I don't know what it was, 50 cents an hour or something, um, and use and go down to the basement and use these terminals, these chug, 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 uh, 100 baud, 300 baud, pretty damn slow and very noisy uh, teletypes with rolls of, with like essentially infinite rolls of yellow funny paper in them uh, and chug, 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 and no, no display, right? Uh, and, 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 and there were games implemented in basic that ran on these things and you type, 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 and you play Hunt the Wumpus and uh, Eliza, which is a Rogerian psychotherapist and some kind of Star Trek something or other. Well, we were in the Star Trek club after all. Um, and uh, a few others I forget. And so we, we got to go and sit and play these games and then, and, then, and then take home the printout, right? Instead of a display, like it's printing onto this big roll of paper and then you tear it off, you know, rip, roll it up, put rubber band around it and take it home. You know, it's just like this great souvenir, this phenomenal experience. Um, and so we went there a few times uh, as field trips to Lawrence Hall of Science, and I really got hooked. And uh, at the time, it was almost impossible, at least in a small agricultural town like mine, to find any information about programming at all. Um, yeah, it was just about impossible. There were not like universities or anything like that. Uh, and so, so we had, but I was determined to learn like how on earth this works and how I could do it, how I could make computation happen. Um, and so we learned that there was a certain way to interrupt these games. And while they were interrupted, there was a certain command that you could do that would print out the source code. Oh, nice. All right. Yeah. And so now when we took home these tubes of paper, they didn't just contain like us talking to Eliza and playing Star Trek and hunting the wumpus. They contained source code to the programs that we had played. What language was it? And it was basic. Okay. It was, it was all basic. And so that was my first programming language. And it was, and yet I didn't have any books on basic. I had, and I couldn't find any, I had no access to any. And so what we did is we took them back and then, and then me and my high school buddies, we would, we would at lunch and, you know, after school, we would sit around and look at these printouts, these yellow rolls of paper, right? And we'd look at the source code and we would circle things and make little notes, guesses about what they meant. Mm -hmm. And so basically for us, it was kind of an empirical science. We had some observation, we had played the game right? and we read this completely unknown language and, and which basic is like line numbers and go-tos and assignments. Right? It's gross. Oh yeah. And that and that was what we had to figure out what that meant. And it was the best puzzle ever. It, it was like, you know, it's archaeology. You dug up oh, some yeah. hieroglyphics, right? <laughs> and and before we had the Rosetta Stone, right? You gotta figure out what these means and what clues do you have and oh, cross clues. God. You know, it was like it was like code breaking. It was like archaeology. Oh, yeah. It was the best. It was a fantastic way to learn about programming. It was so much fun. Could yeah. you learn basic it, in the end of the day like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we got, we got good at it.
that is probably something that kids we even even my generation we will never even think about doing we got yeah. YouTube yeah, it was by necessity, all, yeah. all over the place. And yeah, just, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And of course, if you grew up with the web, you know, not only, you know, not only because of the time we have all this information, but we also have access to all information yeah. in the world and stuff. But yeah. Yeah. But, but I'm living in this small town that grew, grew grapes and, you know, had farmers. So you then you were, bicycle around. I assume then you were ready. By the time you went into your high school, you were decided to go to a university and studies. No, you didn't study computer science. Was there a computer right. science courses then? Because you, you went for math, right? Yes and no. Um, there was no computer science department. So I started college in 1978. I was 17 years old, I guess. Um, and there were no computer science department. Uh, and so, and this was the case in most universities in the US, I think, at the time. Um, and like many other universities, there were classes that you might call computer science and they were either, they were offered in one or two places, the math department or in some department of the college of engineering. Mm -hmm. okay. So, so you, you could take your pick. So I took, um, some kind of class in some kind of programming, something or other, and it emphasized logic. And that was in the math department. Right. And then there were, there were some classes in, in, in engineering that emphasized other things. So, so I, um, so I was, I, by that time I found, by that time I had also found out that I was really good at math and I really, really liked it a lot. I, I won math contests and it was completely surprised to me, surprised to me because, <laughs> because I wasn't good at what I was told was math. So when I started winning math contests, uh, you know, I knew I, I kind of, I liked it better, but I had no idea I was good at it because I actually was not good at, at what my elementary school teacher said was math. Yeah. In fact, one of them, like I, I, for some reason signed up for some summer class in algebra because I was curious. And she said to me something like, well, I don't, you know, I think you better work harder on your arithmetic before you think you could do something like that. You know, some <laughs> terrible, discouraging <laughs> thing that a teacher might say. Yeah. Right. And, and, but you know, but like who wants to be an automaton, you know, and learn arithmetic, <laughs> so you know, like true. skillfully. Yeah. So, and so anyway, I, I was good at math and I liked it once contests and whatever, and I wanted to do more math. So, and, and, and then, uh, there happened to be some classes you might now call computer science. Uh, they, at the time they might call them logic or computer something or other in the math department and a few in, in engineering later, as in many universities, while I was an undergrad later, it, you know, it, it was, the field was maturing. And then there was a question like, there was like the university, we should make, we should have a computer science department. A few universities, other universities, let's do it too. Mm -hmm. Then there was a question, who gets it? The math department or college of engineering? And, and so those two, you know, those two uh, colleges fought it out. And as with most American universities, engineering won and math lost. Yeah. And, and so, and I believe that if it had gone the other way, computer science would be completely different. And it would be an actual science but, and it would yeah. be beautiful and powerful. But because it was in engineering, which is more like a practical discipline, yeah. you know, aimed at solving immediate problems in not terribly creative ways. And empirical. Because right? it's engineering, it's not theoretical physics. But if it had come out of mathematics and, and computing did come out of mathematics, yep. but, but, but the fact that, that it was taught in, in engineering colleges meant that it was taught in a particular way. And that shaped what people think computing is about. Mm. But but it didn't shape what I think computing is about. Yeah. Did you learn how to program so, in university? Uh, so in high school, I learned how to. I figured out how to program in basic, <laughs> and eventually we actually we got access to books. Um, my, my buddy Jim, uh, I think maybe his parents gave him. Uh, 
uh, a, a book on on probably basic, uh, and then some others, and that and that that like you mean actual answers? We don't have to guess, you know. That was like that was a game changer too, you know. And it corrected some of our wrong theories and so on. Yeah, so that really upped our game. Some actual information, you know. Uh, instead of just guesswork, yeah. And then we also learned how to program an assembly language, well, first machine language, you know, typing in hexadecimal, and then, you know, assembly language. And that was actually very fun in its own way. Uh, it ran way too fast. So, you know, you had to like, you had to write all these loops like, oh, for God's sake, slow down. You know, uh, you know, and this is on an 8-bit 8080 computer. You know, we, now we would think it's absurdly slow. It ran, yeah. I don't know, yeah, half yeah, a megahertz yeah. or something. Yeah, but but it ran way too fast for the things we wanted to do, yeah. Yeah, and then in college, I guess I took a Fortran course. Ah, Fortran. And uh, yeah, and then I got a summer job at a nursery, my first programming job. And that was in a really weird language called RPG, Program Generator. It was a very weird business kind of language. Um, and and, uh, and I, had, I, had to, I had to find some machine that would run it so I could say I knew it so I could get this job and earn some money for the summer and have a fun time uh, and not have to like dig ditches or something like that. Uh, so, so as I learned that language, but, but then my first really experience of a beautiful language was Lisp. And, and I, I found that in the library. Um, I just looking through the, you know, looking through books, I found one called the little Lisper. Um, and that, and that, that was, that was a revelation. It's a Socratic dialogue about, uh, Lisp, uh, programming and, and, uh, and, and that really turned me on. That was my first indication that programming could be beautiful. And then I moved from Lisp to ML um, when ML came out. And uh, I had already realized that I wanted types. And so I was trying to fake them in Lisp. And then I got ML. So that's... And, then when I found, and then when I found Haskell, I, I knew that ha- Haskell really focused on the, the good parts of ML, uh, improved the type system, uh, eliminated the really bad stuff, uh, which is imperative programming. Uh, and... Uh, uh, yeah, and that much was, more was recently. Yeah, yeah, I have found something better than Haskell. You want to talk about it? What do you found? <laughs> do you want to hear about it? Of course. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I so I programmed in Haskell is my main language from 1994 or five. I forget which. Um, so I I did the first function reactive programming uh, design and prototype. Uh, in well, actually, it was in, in a kind of ML-like language, and then I found, and then I found Haskell, uh, and I and I realized, oh, this is exactly what I really wanted. I was just trying to make ML be it, and it can't, it can't really be it. I mean, I don't have to, I don't have to, I don't have to try to make it be something it doesn't want to. You know, it's like a, a relationship, like you know, you can try to fix the other person, but it's really better if you find somebody you're actually compatible with. So I found someone I was actually compatible with, and that was Haskell, and uh, <laughs> and and then that that's what I worked in for 25 years. 26 years, something like that. And that, that was my main language all that time. Uh, and then I started mentoring a group of people in hardware uh, who were doing some hardware design, parallel hardware design for machine learning. And I had figured out how to think about linear algebra in a really beautiful way in order to do automatic uh, differentiation in a really beautiful, uh, provably correct, very efficient way, which uh, nobody, as far as I know, uh, knew how to do. Uh, so a lot of people were doing like machine learning on top of some horrible thing called backpropagation, which, which is like described in the terrible way and the, the worst terms in terms of arrays and graphs uh, and side effects and really complicated. And uh, and I knew in my heart 
af after this insight about Cartesian closed categories and hardware, yeah, I mentioned I, I knew that this idea had to be good for a lot of other things. And one day when I was talking about automatic differentiation, I was just filling in, uh, in, in a meetup and I was talking about how I had understood it in a fairly pretty way, uh, described in a paper called Beautiful Differentiation. Um, I realized that I, I just had this epiphany and I knew that this that what I was talking about was not the best way to talk about automatic differentiation, that categories is, that the vocabulary in which I was trying to describe it was, was fairly decent, especially if you want to do forward mode, not reverse mode, automatic differentiation, which nobody wants to do for anything very useful. Um, but if I changed my vocabulary in a way that was much more symmetric with respect to composition, which category theory is, that, that, that the whole story became much simpler and probably much more powerful. And I, and, and I investigated that intuition and found out that I was, exact, I was exactly right. That it, it, if, you, if you think about it, automatic differentiation in a very simple, precise way, and you phrase that understanding in the language of categories, which is just sequential and parallel composition and projections and identity. That's all. Okay. So incredibly simple. Then you can describe automatic differentiation in an incredibly simple way with, and it's, and prove it correct in an incredibly simple way. And, and it's not just one automatic differentiation algorithm. It's every one of them. It's forward mode, reverse mode, all mixed modes. And not only that, but it's much, much more general than even automatic differentiation uh, be, be, because the, the role of derivatives um, actually generalizes the thing, the things that are derivatives generalizes to arbitrary Cartesian categories itself. And so I knew that, 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 that automatic differentiation is not just another example of compiling the categories, but if looked in that lens, it general it itself simplifies tremendously and becomes rigorous and even formally provable and generalizes tremendously and is incredibly efficient and not just efficient, but efficient for the age of parallelism. In other words, for the present. Whereas backpropagation being so mutation intense is, is intrinsically inappropriate for the age of parallelism. In other words, for now, um, for, for, for the realities of modern computers. And when I say modern computers, I don't just mean the last few years. I mean, the last several decades, I mean, since the sixties even. Yeah. So, uh, so I had to figure out a better way to think about linear algebra. Well, actually I didn't, I, I, when I was an undergrad as a math undergrad, I learned a better way to think about linear algebra and calculus. Okay. And then much later, it became possible for me to use that, use that learning in a precise way in programming okay. that, that I was able to do that in Haskell only when Haskell grew to a certain point. Okay. And then, and, and that's what allowed me to express automatic differentiation to um, linear algebra in a beautiful way in Haskell, powerful, beautiful way, which is not matrices. Okay. You may have been taught that linear algebra was about matrices. It is not. Uh, that's, that's an unnecessary and harmful way to think about linear algebra. Okay. And the key to doing beautiful, efficient automatic differentiation is to not choose that. And if you think linear algebra is about matrices, you don't have a chance not to choose it. Okay. If, if you think machine learning is about neural nets or about any kind of nets, you don't have a chance to do it well. Okay. So anyway, um, uh, so a group of folks I knew were working for this hardware startup and they were going to, they wanted to do a nice, efficient hardware design for doing some efficient linear algebra. Okay. So I said, well, actually I figured out a really lovely way to think about linear algebra and I would be, I'd be happy to mentor you in, in solving your problem in a beautiful compositional, provably correct, extremely efficient way. 
And so I started, I started mentoring them and giving them like assignments and stuff. And we were doing it in Haskell. And I realized something in the process, which is that, which is, um, it wasn't working for them. Using Haskell was not getting, was not leading them where I wanted them to go. Okay. So I, so it wasn't just, so, and the reason is that, that Haskell wasn't how I was solving my problems. Denotational design was how I was solving my problems. Okay. And we haven't talked about what denotational design is. Denotational design is my central paradigm. It's, it, 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 it's a way to think about what software is and how to specify, how to define it and how to implement it correctly in a way that is powerful and uh, provable and pragmatically provable. Okay. Uh, so um, I was, uh, I realized that, that, I, that it wasn't Haskell that enabled me to do what I was able to do and wanted them to learn. It was denotational design. And Haskell was a hospitable environment in which to do it. Just like ML was a hospitable environment for me earlier, but Haskell was better. Okay. So, so the reason I wrote not, the reason I wrote good Lisp programs is that I thought about types even the Lisp didn't. The reason I wrote good ML programs is that I knew not to use mutation, even though ML invited me to. Okay. The reason I wrote good Haskell programs is that I knew to think about things denotationally and have elegant specifications and calculate my programs correctly from those specifications. But it wasn't Haskell that enabled me to do that. So when I was trying to teach these guys denotational design using Haskell, it worked for me because I had the inner guidance, right? I, I, I knew, I knew how to use Haskell, not because Haskell made me, but because I had my inner sense of it. I knew that, that I had to be clear about the uh, denotation. I had to set up certain uh, homomorphism equations and solve them for, to, to, to get correct implementations. Okay. And it wasn't Haskell that taught me to do that. Um, and, and Haskell was hospitable only. Okay. So, so when I tried to give them the same formula that worked for me, it didn't work for them. And I realized they needed more. Well, and I got tired of telling them, no, you're not getting it. Yes. That's a Haskell program, but it's wrong. Okay. Because Haskell, Haskell compiler wasn't telling them their programs were wrong and they were wrong. Okay. So I wanted I wanted the compiler to tell them they were wrong instead of me telling them they were wrong. Cause I kept telling them over and over in different ways, the same, the same answer. They'd say, what, what should this, what, what should this mean? This linear algebra operation on this representation. And I would say you, that is not a question. The, the, the framework I gave you answers that question. What is the denotation? What are the homomorphisms? If, if, if your, if your answer about how to define it agrees with the homomorphisms, it's right. If it disagrees, it's wrong. So you have to always think about what it means and what is the de what yeah what does it mean and then what is the vocabulary and the meaning function has to be homomorphic with respect to the vocabulary it has to preserve the vocabulary and in other words it has to be a perfect analogy and I'm going to talk about why why that that is what programming is about making perfect analogies between a problem I'm trying to solve and something I can formulate as a program in other words it's computation what is a perfect analogy it's a homomorphism. In category theory, those are called functors, but in other areas of algebra, they're called something other. Modern homomorphism, ring homomorphism. In, in linear algebra, they're called linear transformations. Yeah. So that, that's a vector space homomorphism. Let me see if I got it right. In yeah. your perfect programming language, you would like that your 
functions in your data and whatever you're doing respects whatever denotational denotation you are giving them so that it has the proper meanings and furthermore exactly and furthermore in order to accomplish that properly it needs to solve the constraint equations of that yes. algebra in a way exactly so it seems to me now that um Maybe, maybe I'm giving too much a leap of thought here, but it seems to me that you don't actually want just a programming language, do you? <laughs> You're exactly right. You want You're exactly right. something that is more powerful than that in the sense that you can either do a proof inside of your type system or something like that. I click with Haskell maybe, or you will do the proof for it, right? Yes. Yes, you're exact. You're exactly right. You put your finger on it. Yeah. So, so I did. I was able. I have been able to do what I've been able to do. Have the insights that I've been able to have, and design programs you know, to the quality that I do, <clears throat> because I combine two things. I com I, I, I combine reasoning, you know, precise, rigorous, re elegant reasoning, with programming. Okay. And if only one, and and only one of those was supported by my programming language, Haskell. And I think Haskell is probably roughly the best of its category, which I now call implementation only languages. Okay. It's my favorite implementation only language. Okay. But I used it in addition to something else that was really, that's really more fundamental and more important, which is what is the question? Okay. So a program is an answer, right? Yeah. And in order to even evaluate and think about an answer, you have to know what the question is. The most important ingredient in, a, in an answer is a question, wow. right? If you if you have an answer and you don't have a question, you can't know whether your answer is right. You can't even know the, what it means for it to be right. And that is what almost all programmers do almost all the time. 42. They try to hmm? 42. 42, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not it's not wrong. It's it's what uh, Polly so called not even wrong. Exactly. <laughs> okay. It's just confusion. It's just it's just it's but just some kind of neuronal it, pattern dancing. But what does it mean? Yeah. What does it mean? What does yeah. it mean? Yeah. What am I? What 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 question am I am I answering that this program answers? What question am I asking that this program answers correctly? Huh. Okay. Mm. Right. Right. So, so, and, and actually even knowing the question is even more important than answering it correctly. And that's really the important thing is knowing the question and then realizing that, that actually this question is in poor taste. This question could be made much more clear. This question has extraneous details, ferreting them out, removing them, making the question simpler and more powerful, removing my biases from the question. Okay, and that's why we must not think operationally when we think about our programs fundamentally. Mm -hmm. Okay, because for operational thinking, which is embodied in operational semantics, but is beyond it, 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 it is 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 mainly about biases about how to answer problems at questions. Okay, and the most important thing is to understand the question we're asking in the most beautiful way. Okay, so I developed the ability to do this, thankfully, you know, from a few different you know, sources that helped me do that. But when I want to teach someone else, that was when I really came to see it isn't Haskell that's making this work. It's a combination of Haskell and a particular pattern of reasoning, which eventually I came to call denotational design and me practicing denotational design in Haskell. But that meant I did a lot of work on paper. 
really in my electronic journal, right? I wrote down the specifications. I wrote down the homomorphism equations. I, I solved them. I wrote down my proofs, all this kind of stuff, right? But I had, an, but I had a realization. Okay, so, so then I realized, so I'm, I'm not successfully teaching these guys, and I'm not enjoying the process, and I, and I don't like my role of repeatedly telling them they're wrong for the same reason over and over and over, right? But programmers are used to being told, well, some programmers are used to being told and actually enjoy it when their compiler tells them they're wrong, okay? I think there's a lot of programmers who don't like it, and they program in Python. They program in dynamically typed languages because they're so full of confusion. You can't be wrong. You can only be confused. Okay. So, so if, if you have a fragile enough ego, you're not going to want a language that tells you you're wrong when you are wrong. Right. But if you are more committed to science and understanding than you are to ego, then I think you want to be told you're wrong. I love yeah, being told I'm wrong. Yeah, right. Yeah. So that's part of why I love static typing. Wrong, 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 Connell. I'm like, thank you. So, but for the most important aspect of programming, the most fundamental aspect of programming, Haskell is entirely inadequate to tell me I'm wrong when I am, okay? Because it's, it's incapable of expressing what it means to be right. If, I can, if, it, if it can't even express, if it doesn't even give me the language in which to express what it means to be right, then it doesn't have a prayer of noticing when I'm wrong, all right? So there's two, there's, there's two things. First, I have to tell it what it means for, to be right. In other words, I have to tell it what question I'm, str I'm, I'm struggling to answer, what my goal is here. I have to be able to tell it that in a clear, unambiguous way. And then secondly, as much as it's able, as, as much as we can, it has to tell me when, I, when I'm not right. Okay, <clears throat> That's what types are for. Haskell has a decent type system, has a better type system than ML. ML has a better type system than C Sharp. C Sharp has a better type system than C. Perl and Python, <laughs> right? Better than C, maybe. Yeah, better than Perl and Python and so on. You know, it's, it's kind of funny languages, right? But it's still entirely inadequate to talk about correctness in any but the most trivial uh, uh, cases. <clears throat> And the most important question about my program is, what am I trying to do? What does it mean to be right? <clears throat> and no, what I'm now calling implementation only languages and Haskell is perhaps the best of the lot can touch that. <clears throat> and so you're completely right. You have, you have to go beyond implementation only languages to a language that, suppo that supports not just computation, but correctness, not just, not just answers, but questions. And how do you envision that language? What's... Because there are many choices here now. We have dependent types, we have SMT solvers, we have liquid types. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So, um, so I've looked at all of the, all of those categories, and you know, I have for a few decades. My dissertation was actually about dependent types, as it turned out. I couldn't do graphics. Found something <laughs> dependent types. It turned out. Turned out I, I figured out how to think about a problem clearly enough, thanks to this environment I was in that I could solve a problem. That problem had to do with dependent types. So, but I had never really used dependent types. It just, just was a convenient problem. I was in a position to solve higher order unification with dependent types. I would just happen to be at the right time in the right place with the right skills to solve that problem at a time when it was relevant. So, but I never used it. So, so anyway, um, dependent types for me is the clear winner by far. Uh, uh, it's the, it, for, for 
I think for a bunch of reasons, some, some are superficial and some are profound. Um, SMT has some benefits. I was going to say advantages, but I don't mean that. I mean benefits. Okay. So SMT has, has, has some benefits of automation. Um, and those are great. Something is, is, you know, is automatable. Um, it has scaling problems. Uh, in other words, you know, it can solve problems to a certain size. It's amazing, you know, given what it tries to do, which is an incomplete problem, as I understand, uh, it's it's phenomenal that it's been engineered so well that it can be so useful in so many. I mean, that that that's great, right? When I think it wasn't that long ago that we like it's incomplete, so it can't be, you know, you can't do anything useful with it. Wrong. You can do a hell of a lot of useful stuff with SMT, okay? But it still fundamentally doesn't scale. It scales more than it used to, a lot more. But remember, progress, right? like David Deutsch calls the beginning of infinity, right? So unlimited progress means things have to compose and scale arbitrarily. And no combinatorial process can do that. No graph isomorphism thing, no SMT or other, no, no matter how well you engineer them, you can bring the constant factors down. You can surprisingly and, you know, admirably uh, grow the space of problems that you can solve, but you cannot get to infinity. Okay, you can get to a couple orders of magnitude. That's it. That's not even worth bothering with. It's a dead end. Okay, it's useful in conjunction with dependent types. Okay, but but it's not a solution on its own. Liquid types. I really wanted to love liquid types. I really wanted to, and that was what I tried before I used Agda. And um. Yeah, was was liquid Haskell, uh, and I couldn't love it. Um, I I tried and I got really good help. Uh, Nikki Vazu uh, helped me very much. I appreciate it, and I and I loved working with her. And I wished that I could have hung with it and and done more stuff with her. She's delightful, um, and I couldn't. And and I I don't want to like slam their work or anything, but so I'm just thinking about how, how I want to say this. Um, there's something that's really important to me with dependent types done in a nice way, which for me, the best that I know is Agda of the lot, Cochlean, Idris, but Agda for me is the most tasteful of them. Um, it, it has this beauty to it. it. It has a consistency. It has a simplicity. It has tremendous power, but it has a beautiful consistency. It's part of an incredibly beautiful story about the about the equivalence of computation, which is the type lambda calculus, uh, reason, right, which is logic, and the foundations of mathematics, which is now category theory. It used to be set theory, but now it's category theory. In other words, when I say now is, I really mean it's got my vote. For, for, for the, you know, more, more powerful, scalable, uh, useful foundations of mathematics, right? These three areas are equivalent, okay? So the, 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 these, these are tremendously penetrating insights into three different things, computation, uh, reasoning, and then, you know, all of mathematics, so reasoning, logic, all of mathematics. These are three incredibly powerful fields. They are the, all the same thing. This is the... This is the Curry-Howard-Lambic uh, correspondence or isomorphism. Okay, now uh, you need to you need um, uh, in order to get the logic part of that, you need dependent types. 
Okay. So, so one of the most important things we discover in the 20th century is, is, uh, um, is exactly what reasoning is. Okay. So, so Euclid, you know, Euclid had some great insights, tremendous boost, getting us going down this road to reasoning in a systematic way. Okay. And then that carried us, you know, for the next 2,200 years, 2,400 years, something. But then something really important happened. Not only did we get a lot more experience with mathematics after the uh, period of the Enlightenment, science, right? 16th, 17th, 18th century, 19th century. But then something revolutionary happened at the beginning of the 20th century, which, which is um, a few people. There was uh, Giuseppe Piano, uh, Gottlieb Frege, uh, Bertrand Russell. Okay? Genson, probably. And, and, yeah, absolutely. Gerhard Genson. So, so this was some, somewhat later. So, so uh, you know, Genson and and uh, Russell came a little bit later than uh, go, than you know Frege and Piano. They started looking at what uh, uh, what really is logic, what is reason, not only like here's us using it as mathematicians, right? But what is it we're doing? Okay, and Bertrand Russell in particular, he got tuned into contradictions in the foundations of mathematics, right? So, so the, the, the Western mathematical world was centered in Paris, right? Uh, I mean, that's where they would meet, but David Hilbert was their like, spiritual father, right? Uh, who uh, was in Germany, I think. Uh, I forget exactly. Um, so there was, the, there was the European mathematical community and they were making terrific progress, doing wonderful work. And they were building on set theory. And then, and then Russell came along in the very early 20th century and in his own way started smelling, started sniffing out some problems in the foundations of mathematics in set theory that we had built everything else on. Okay. And he, if, if you read the graphic novel Logic Comics, it's a delightful description of Bertrand Russell's kind of quest and the resistance he got. Like, like we don't want to hear it. Um, but, but, but he found things that people could not ignore, uh, contradictions, uh, and, and, and then, uh, uh, Frege and Piano, or they, they, they were, they were like already starting to like, in a, in a way that looks very clumsy now, but only because of them, right? I mean, only because of them that we've been able to get to where we are. So the early stages of, of trying to formalize logic, right? What are the base, what are the minimal things out of which you can build reasoning, right? And, and then, uh, piano, right? You know, you for piano numbers, I assume. Of course, yeah. So piano numbers is right. Natural numbers. You got zero and successor, and he defined addition, multiplication, exponentiation, right? Kind of thing. What he was doing, I didn't really understand this till a couple of years ago. What he was doing was was a enterprise called lo, lo, logicism. Okay, which which is can we build all of mathematics on logic? All right. So you had you had like numbers. And then you have logic, which we've been really fuzzy about. We kind of use, but it's not really a field. But we use some kind of reasoning that we seem to feel okay about and seems to get mostly good results, right? When we do numbers and then we have weird numbers like complex numbers and we have higher dimensional things, you know, we can do all this stuff, you know. But reasoning itself was like folklore, you know. It was like a skill you pick up, all right? But, but numbers, like, whoa, we really know what we're doing here. So Piano was asking, and this is logicism, was asking, can we understand numbers via logic? Right? Can we get clear on what logic is? And then can we build numbers on logic? 
then numbers are no longer part of our foundation. Then we have a simpler foundation. If we know our foundation is solid, we know everything we build on it is solid. We don't have to trust numbers. We only have to trust logic. I don't know. We don't really know what logic is yet, but it seems worth figuring out. And he and he and he he demonstrated how yes, you can build natural numbers at least on top of logic. Other people had figured out how you build integers on top of natural numbers, how you build rationals on top of integers, how you build reals on top of rationals, data can cuts, all that kind of stuff, right? So natural numbers, right? Like Dedekind, I think it was, who said, you know, God invented the natural numbers. All this is man's handiwork, right? <laughs> right? So, so building natural numbers on top of something else that God, you know, like God, like God didn't have to, right? That's great. And he did it. And we use it today. That's piano numbers. But it, piano numbers are like, every time you use a piano number, like, go Giuseppe. You know, I mean, this, this was a great, this is, this is not just about numbers. This is a profound, profound thing he was up to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, so 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 he's working this out. Frege, very importantly, you know, he's working out his system of what logic is, you know, and you can go and look at it and all these funny symbols and awkward stuff, you know, and then uh, Bertrand Russell comes along and like he starts to like something's fishy in the world of mathematics. All these guys believe in, they're not interested in what I'm, they are not want to hear what I have to say. It's like, you know, what do you know? I'm David Hilbert or whatever. You know, <laughs> and, and, uh, and, you know, I mean, they're very, very successful. And he's like, okay, fine. I'll just, you know, I'm just going to keep working on this until I, until I find something so upsetting that you're going to have to pay attention, which he did. Absolutely did. All right. Okay. And, and then, and then he and Alfred uh, North Whitehead spent 10 years, right. Doing Mathematica, right. That's the kind of, so, so, so they had to work out logic and then like really use it, you know, for 10 years in a huge endeavor. Okay. And, and so, so like, that's a lot of experience in improving it. And then Garrett Genson came along and, yeah. you know, natural deduction, like, oh, right. And then, you know, Curry, uh, uh, Moses Schoenfinkel, you know, this is like guys are getting these like beautiful insights, you know, church comes in there. Right. And, and, and so, yeah. just so something emerged. Just a quick yeah. remark. Like you, you said over there that when piano was making the natural numbers, we didn't have a proper foundation what the logic means, right? But that's where yeah. Genson comes in and, and actually formalize and show that everything oh. now is correct, right? Yeah. So, uh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, he, I think he improved it. Like, like, so, so these early guys, early guys, mm -hmm. they mm -hmm. did come up, they did invent logic. I mean, they did invent formal logic, but Genson improved it massively, yeah. right? I mean, Genson like is so good. Yeah. So, so, so there's, there's just, there's this progression right. into so okay so now we know what logic is and we know how to build everything on logic right and and, and then there was the hmm, brower okay so brower was like so brower's fa father of uh constructivism right mm -hmm. uh, uh intuitionism yep. right so so he has this whole philosophy which I don't, I don't i don't think i really really get in my bones yet um but but then so so then there, there's like Brower, Komogorov, and Hating, right? So that they come up with this like interpretation of proofs in terms of what we now call types, right? So, so this idea that, uh, so okay, so talk about proofs. We have to talk about propositions, right? You can't know what a, you can't like what is logic. It's proofs and propositions and how you get between them, right? So you have to know what propositions are and you have to know what proofs are. If they know what the building blocks of them mean. So there's there's deep insight, and I think that's came out of PHK, Brower, I think, Komogorov, uh, the interpretation, right? And and it, and it's the idea that, and it really comes out of this, this constructivist 
uh, perspective, which is that a proof of a conjunction, and, and, and I mean, like you can see this in, in Ginson's work, right, and others, a proof of a conjunction is a pair of proofs because, because you prove a conjunction, A and B, by proving A and proving B. In other words, you build a proof of A and B out of a pair of proofs, one a proof of A and a proof of B. And then in constructive logic, but not classical, a proof of A or B, every proof of A or B, can be expressed as a proof of A or a proof of B. Okay, in, constructive log in classical logic, that's not the case, but in Brouwer's logic, it is. Okay, because they don't have law of excluded middle, which, which says, I know P or not P without knowing either one. Okay, so without that, you, you get, oh, that, oh, that's very pretty. And then you could talk about what is negation and what is implication. And they all have very lovely, simple answers. What is truth? What is falsehood? They all have very simple answers in terms of what we now call types. Okay. And it fits what Ginson is talking about, right? And it builds on, you know, our kind of understanding of logic. So what happened in the 20th century was we discovered what reasoning is in a very clear way. We refined it and made it beautiful. We went, we went through a succession of early attempts that were necessary and found really beautiful ones. And then in the, and then in later in the, you know, getting further into the 20th century, we discovered some amazing parallels, beautiful ways like the BHK interpretation. It talks about information and proofs, what we now call uh, propositions as types, right? And proofs as programs. Okay. That, that, that's the BHK interpretation. So that, that, that parallelism, well, that became a whole lot more interesting when types and values became computable, right? So in other in words, they always were computable. I mean, mechanistically computable. When we invented computers in the middle of the century, right? And now computers could manipulate information in systematic dependable ways. And early we didn't understand the implications, but then around the seventies, Right, then you have Nicholas de Bruyne, and he did this series of auto, auto like he his work was automath and explored dependent typing, right? And then of course, uh, you have uh, Pierre Martin Liv, right? And that that's that's who we build on, you know, that that's the flavor we build on today. But what what uh, de Bruyne pioneered is showing it, it is realizing and then demonstrating compellingly that you could take these insights about what logic was. You could take the BHK connection, BHK connection, and you can make, and then you, then you could take the invention of computers that happened in between, right? In between the thirties and the seventies, and you can make logic computable, all right? You can use computers, these, these machines made out of physics in order to compute knowledge. And my knowledge, I don't just mean stuff you claim. I mean, stuff we know. How do we know it? By logic. How do you mechanize logic? By realizing this connection between logic and types, between uh, values, or you want to say computable values, or programs, if you want, and, and proofs. So we figure out, we, we learned how to mechanize information and manipulation of it. We realized that that is actually the same thing, if you think in a beautiful way, not a sequential way. It's the same thing as logic. You put those together, De Bruyne's work, and then you know it took a while to mature into actual programming language we use today, and you get ah, computation is not just for building recipes of how to do stuff. 
It's for knowing what's true. And now you put these two ideas together. How do I make, how do I make activity? How do I get physics, right? To perform actions that I want. In other words, how do you make program? How do you make computers do stuff? Right. And how do you reason correctly? And how do you do that together? Right. So, so now you, when you put all that together, you get, we now know how to say what it is we want to solve. In other words, we know, we know how to phrase a question clearly. We know how to phrase a computational recipe clearly, and we know how to phrase the proof, right? That the computational recipe is correct. It answers the question correctly. We know how to do that now. We didn't know how to do that hundred years ago. We know how to do almost any of it hundred years ago. Now we know how to do all of it. That's the most important uh, a thing that we've ever, you know, understood about computation. And almost all programmers act as if it never happened. Doesn't, and you and absolutely it, have to get that and internalize it and embrace it and practice it to do programming well. Under this isom isomorphism and looking back at what we were talking about, how computation and programming languages and what we're doing here is a tool to reason and to, to get to do something. It seems to me that now the two and the object that we're looking at collapse and oh. they're the same now. Isn't that? Uh, if, if you want to prove actually that you're, yeah, it depends on how deep you want to go. <laughs> yeah. But so, so like, 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 like if, if my proof of correct, if, if my implementation is like high level, it's like a Haskell program. Yeah. Okay. So some kind of high level thing that's quite divorced from a machine, mm. then you kind of can ignore the nature of yeah. the machine, you know, right. to prove its correctness. But, but like my current focus and has been for the last year is designing correct, massively parallel uh, computational hardware. Right? That, that's what I'm working on is, is doing that it, compositionally correct, meaning correctness proofs and you build the proofs while you're building the hardware design in, in, in a beautiful, inspiring, elegant, simple way. Okay. And so absolutely now, right? Like, like it, 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 even if the, even if the machine isn't reasoning about itself, it's maybe reasoning about a different machine and it might as well reason about itself. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. It's almost if, yeah. what if it's almost as if math and knowledge or, or you want to call it lo logic took its own life in a way that we are manipulating from the bones. That's wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's powerful stuff. It's it beautiful stuff. Yeah. And and if you think about programming in operational ways, okay, if you're a PL person, that means if you use operational semantics to try to understand anything, right? Or if you're a programmer and you use any kind of imperative language. And I mean, that includes Haskell with Haskell style of imperative programming because it's the same thing. It's not functional programming in any in any meaningful sense. Yeah. Um, if, if, if you embrace this kind of sequential stateful notion of computation, you will not have these insights. Right. And you will make proof difficult. And, and, and even if you succeed in proving something, you won't learn anything profound. You will have only shown that you are able to solve an artificially difficult problem uh, without gaining deep insights. Earlier, you have mentioned that you see in through improving uh, a hope for this, for this lost age that we're in. And, and it is starting to make a little more sense now at this, this level of the conversation, but is there yeah. more to it? Yes. 
Yes, there is. Yeah. So just thinking about what, what angle to start on answering that question. Um, it's this. So I recently read a book. It was written a good while ago. It's by James Glick, who's a popular science author, and it's called The Information. And it is about the information age, and in particular, Claude Shannon. It's, it's a lovely book. I, I, I really enjoy his writing. Um, and this book in particular really lit me up. And chapter two uh, in this book, I highly recommend. <clears throat> and he talks about the nature of language and how language developed. And in particular, the transition from uh, uh, ver spoken only to written language. Okay. And he points out that philosophy could not have come into being before written language. Okay. And here's why. Okay. So, I mean, you know, in, in some primitive weak form, yes. But, but here's what written language did. Written language did a few things. Uh, one of the important things that he talks about that written language did, when we had a written language for the first time, our ideas would, our ideas could hold still long enough for us to look at them carefully and reflect on them and improve them. So before written language, you, we heard stuff, right? Around the fire, you know, really primitive or, or, you know, even much, much later, uh, we, we, we heard stuff and it stuck kind of vaguely, sort of, you know, but it, it basically kind of moved through, right? It was like sound pressure waves, right? And it kind of moved through and it left some sort of impression on my in my brain left some sort of impression and, and but it went by fast right and and so uh, you know i may extract some value and pass on some value to other people my children and so on but what happened with written language is it, it, it is now this this thought could be written down and i could just stare at it for as long as i want and in staring at it i can realize i can understand it more deeply but I can also improve on it. Okay. I can realize, yeah, this idea is, you know, it's maybe, you know, it's a little better than my previous idea or, or, or what people used to believe, but we can go more than that. We can say, could this thing be, is there something simpler? Is there something about this that just kind of is a little funny can be improved on. So it, so having written language enabled us, to really examine it and take all the time we needed and make improvements. It started a feedback loop that we only had in the weak, in, in a very weak way. Of course, we had a feedback loop. That's what a brain is, is right? It's a zillion that, you know, feedback loops interconnected. So, but, but, but this kind of written thing, it gives us a very reliable, stable cognitive feedback loop. And that let us improve our ideas in a way we never could before. And that's why Glick says, written language enabled philosophy to come into being. Okay. But of course, not just philosophy, certainly science. Because science is about improving our ideas, improving our ideas and making observations and improving our ideas and making observations. All right. And, and our ideas, our observations say, no, that's the wrong idea. And our ideas say, um, wouldn't this be cool? This seems consistent with the facts. And also here's where I should look for information that shows me I'm wrong. Right, that's like Popper's falsifiability uh, criterion. So, so anyway, so what does that have to do with anything? What this is what I've experienced since I switched to Agda. Okay, so 
for decades, I have been writing down precise specifications and I have been reasoning and, and calculating correct programs for decades. And, and I thought I was pretty good at it and I had, and I had a really good time and done some work that, uh, that, that hadn't been done and developed some insights that had, you know, uh, existed before to my knowledge. But AGDA has, has really changed the process for me in a way I'm tremendously grateful for. It's given me essentially this written language. Okay. So of course I had a written language, but it wasn't a formal language. Right. And so the, now that I can write my specifications and proofs in AGDA, I'm much more critical of them than I used to be. You know, but before, of course, writing them down helped a lot. And of course, I absolutely improved them, improved them, improved them. But now when I'm wrong, it tells me. Right. And also there's something, maybe it's very subjective, but it's like if I write a program, Haskell program, and I could see it's like it's, this part is kind of unnecessarily specific. I can't help it, but like I'm going to make it more general or this part is a little wordier than it needs to be. I'm going to make it more succinct. Right. I mean, that's what I do obsessively when I program in Haskell. Right. It, this I, I write down a program and then I like, how else could I write it? And I write it on five different ways. I write like everything I write about five different ways. And I keep looking for prettier and prettier, more succinct and powerful ways to say it. And sometimes I go too far, but yeah, how I don't know I went too far until I do go too far. And then I back up, you know, so that's what I do. Now I do that with my, with my specifications and proofs. Okay. There's something about this, like feedback of like, it's checking me and also my ability to take my reasoning and put it into a library, right. parameterize it, mm -hmm. put it in a library, reuse it, right? It, it, and share it with other people. It really changes this kind of, for me, dynamic. And I think it's, you know, it's a fairly subjective effect, um, but it's been a really profound one for me. Yeah. <clears throat> so now my, my, my practice of denotational design, my paradigm is way better than it used to be. Right. My practice for decades. And then I've only been doing Agda program for a year and a half or two years, but it's way better. What I'm doing now is way better. The ideas I'm getting are way better. Things that not only couldn't I say in Haskell, but I couldn't think of. I'm thinking of most, almost everything that I think of now that I discover now, I couldn't have said it, but I think I couldn't have thought of it too without this kind of, right. this language, this independent types because, give me that. Yeah. Because language yeah. restricts how you can express yourself. That's, that's yeah, awesome. yeah, kind, yeah, kind, yeah, kind but, of that. But then also, it it doesn't like help me sharpen it. Yeah, you know, yeah, 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 and, yeah. and writing it down on paper doesn't help me sharpen it. Yeah, and then I no. don't have the same incentive, and I don't have the same standards. Yeah, now, yeah. it's really it and, comes to a big yeah. surprise to me when we're thinking about the person who is saying this is so deep in an industry, because a person in industry, in my experience, will argue the other way around that doing your proofs is going to slow you down dramatically and you don't have time for that. How do I you- I know people say that. It's so incredibly wrong. How do you, but that's that's exactly one of the major counter arguments against through improving. How do yeah. you see yeah, yeah. that being, know. you know? Yeah, it, it, it all depends. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. So, so, so that, yeah. Yeah, what do you, so what, I think what you're asking, yeah. But yeah, people are gonna make this argument. Of course they do, they all the time, right? And and so there, there's a widespread belief that that uh, formal proofs, formal methods are impractical, okay? Right, so, you know, particularly in an industrial setting where you're trying to like get stuff done rather than publish a paper. Yeah, so so I, I think whether that argument is true or not, whether that claim is true or not, depends entirely on what your objectives are. 
So if your objectives are crank out more code that's probably wrong by a certain deadline, right? That maybe fools your manager or fools the customers into thinking you actually did something of value. Fools yourself into thinking it's right because you don't have the ability to express what the question means, right? If that's your goal, then you should not use formal methods. Okay. Because, because, uh, because first of all, you don't need to be right. So you don't get the value out of formal methods, right? And it'll take you a lot longer, right? Because it's hard, right? Formal methods, formal methods are hard, but you know what? Doing everything right is hard. Everything. Ah, that's so true. Right. And formal methods are just, just how we do things right in computer science. That's what, that's all they are. That just like, like, and I mean that in a precise way, like, like without formal methods, we're just guessing and hoping we're, we're doing what people did before science. Which is, we got a bunch of wacky ideas. Some of them will turn out to be right, most of them wrong, and we have no dependable way of telling the difference between them. That's, that, that's, what, that's what we were doing before science. Like the Greeks had tons of great ideas, crazy things about the elements and the shape of the solar system and all this stuff. A few of them were actually kind of okay, right? But most of them were wrong. And most importantly, that's fine. Most of all ideas are wrong. Most of our ideas still are all wrong. But now we have a way to tell which are right and which are wrong. Science gave us that for physical things. Logic gave us that for mental things. Computer Computation is a mental thing. <clears throat> okay? So if your goal is to do wrong stuff with a machine, you should not use formal methods. If your goal is to do right stuff with a machine, you should. It's the only dependable, it's the only dependable way. Now, now let's talk about, is that really the best way? Like as a programmer, I mean, what programmer is going to want to admit and what boss is going to want to admit that they want you to just crank out code that, that's almost certainly wrong, right? We're not going to admit that, but in fact, that's what's going on, right? By anybody who doesn't use formal methods and anybody who gets rewarded for like cranking out lots of code and passing bug tests, even though there's still bugs and all that stuff, right? That, that's, if we tell the truth, that's what the value system is. We just don't want to admit it. Okay. So even if you say, even if you say, okay, I'm not even after absolute correctness. I'm just after 95% probably correct. Okay. I believe the only possible way you can do that is to be a hundred percent correct. The only possible way you can get to almost there is to get all the way there. I think, I think I mentioned this, this idea earlier in a different context when we were talking about continuous infinite. Right. right? Yeah. Which, which is, which is that errors compound Yeah. and, and, and there's a lot of different kinds of errors. Error could be like, like a floating point numbers wrong by a little bit. You combine a bunch of those, it's wrong by a whole lot. Okay. That's why floating point numbers, we have to get past them. We have to, and we have <laughs> to do, and we have to do so it efficiently much. and we have to do it efficiently. And I think we can, I think we absolutely can. Okay, but another kind of approximation, another kind of error is this thing is probably right. And you put a few of those together and it's probably wrong. So if your goal is, is you, I've got this ambitious project, right? Like we don't work on trivial stuff, we're professionals. We've got this, this ambitious thing, right? It's got all these parts. And if every one of them is probably right, the whole thing is probably wrong. The only way I think, I, I'd be happy to be, you know, convinced I was wrong. Yeah. I'm mistaken about this, but I, but the only, I think the only way to get to almost right is to get to all the way. Right. Is that every single piece has a formal proof because, because formal proofs are the only thing that compose without degrading. 
with, without the certainty degrading, without the correctness degrading. And that's what you need. And, and as I said, composition is our superpower. It has to be because our brains are, you know, limited, uh, you know, variety of factors. Yeah. Yeah. So I think if you care about mostly correct, you have to care about entirely correct. And if you don't care about entirely correct or mostly correct, and if you're honest, you have to admit that you're not even trying to do something right, to do your own craft right. Wow, Kano, I am so inspired by everything we've been talking. This was, <laughs> okay. this has been such, such a great deep conversation and wow, it was, it was great. Um, well, it's been great. Um, I am starting to... I'm starting to run out of, of things to bring up. I think we touched okay. all of the major topics that really was really interested to me. We are three hours and a half in. <laughs> it's by far the largest thing that the, the largest conversation that I've talked about. And Angelo, do you have anything you would like to bring up? Um, no, I think like we had a great discussion and I really like how we went through that. Um, yeah. Is okay. there well, it was a pleasure. Before we finish, is there anything mm -hmm. that we didn't touch but you would like to, to to bring up or do you think that maybe it wasn't clear enough you would like to touch again? Yeah. Well, I think what I one thing I well, well I was hoping we would get to. I'm I, I, I think we've used our time fine, but if we talk again, uh, for instance, uh, we might uh, go through a bunch of examples of denotational design. Denotational design is, is, is what I call this a particular paradigm of, of, of how to design software, how to, ask, how to ask really good questions, and how to answer them correctly and systematically. And it's got to do with algebra and homomorphism denotation. And, and, and it, it fits really nicely with this formal, formality stuff. In other words, it's, like, it's a really elegant paradigm that you can use formally or informally. If you want to use it really well, use it formally. And that, that's what I'm doing now. And, and so talking about a bunch of examples that, that, that may make, you know, like this, like I imagine people are going to think like, well, that's kind of inspiring and kind of amazing and probably, you know, like hard to believe, you know, uh, uh, and some examples would have helped. So, right. How about here, here's something I am afraid that my brain capacity is starting to degrade. Absolutely very fastly how about we yeah. schedule another meeting next week totally and we keep totally. exactly on there and we go into examples and mm -hmm. we can even think more what other directions we'd like to touch you bet that sounds good perfect super well i hope you write down questions that come up for you and also like skepticism i really 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 enjoy skepticism i really i like i I don't want anybody to ever believe anything I say. Of course. Right? Of course. You know, I want, I want to like have your curiosity inspired and, yeah. and like I love yeah. to be challenged. And, and also like I believe what I believe because I figured it out for myself. I went through my own process yeah. and that involves skepticism unavoidably. Yeah. Yeah. So, so any, any like skeptical, like challenging kind of things I would just, I would love and value and it would be helpful <laughs> to other listeners because other listeners will too. Right. So yeah. So write down questions and doubts and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then we'll talk again when you're ready. Yeah. 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 Perfect then. And thank you. Thank you.
Wow. Wow, what a conversation, huh? What a conversation. I was so inspired. He is so passionate and cares so deeply about our research and what we do. Yeah, this was a nice conversation. I really like this format. And I assume that if you're here listening after three hours and a half of conversation, you're still here listening to what I have to say. You also liked it, didn't you? You must have liked it. I know you did. So I have good news for you. I plan to do more episodes like this, you know, like much more in depth where I can sit down and have the time to let the the guest to really go through what he's thinking with time, with space, time to breathe, you know. We're all so used to all of this YouTube stuff of 10 minutes of instant information. Let's, let's tap down a little bit. Let's think, meditate on what the person is saying. Give things room to blossom and blow. Anyways, moving forward, I have, I have a news to share with you guys. I made an email just for this show, type through it for all at gmail.com. If you have any comments, if you have any comments that you don't want to leave in the website, send it there. Don't forget to send us the questions for Connell on the website, typethereforall.com. And I'll see you guys next time.